Jack a dull boy. Holy shit, is Jack Nicholson here? Look at my eyebrows. <laughs> They're at the top of my widow's beak. Do you see how fucking crazy his hair is in that film? It's crazy. It's like a wild come over. I have a very weird bit of trivia about that. But I would like to, before we get there, posit you the made-for-TV tagline for this film. Yeah. Your reservation for terror has been booked. What? Mm. Yeah. Uh, actually, <laughs> I'd like to revoke my reservation and get the fuck out of here. That's the worst ever. Sorry, Mick Garris and Stephen King. Oh, by the way, this is Slashers, a horror movie podcast brought to you by three goons. Wait. <laughs> More horror for oh, your porno. <laughs> porno. <laughs> this is Slashers. A podcast about movies and more for those who love horror. Brought to you by three goons with nothing better to do on whatever night we decided to record this week. Thursday. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe it's a day that also ends in Y. Oh. Which is all of them. Fun fact. True. My name is Jake, and with me, as always, is my esteemed colleague, co-host, and cohort, Brian. Brian, say hello to the mutant goons from beyond. What's up, fuck boys? Jesus Christ, calm it down. <laughs> Turbo. Sorry. I said high energy, but Jesus Christ. <laughs> You're like, ah! You're like Nitro from American Gladiators, full of testosterone. Hey, you know what? First I was down here, and then I'm up here. Okay, where do you want me, bud? I want you to settle in the middle. I Ooh. love that you leveling out. You had the beer in your hand to <laughs> show how high you That is leveling out. <laughs> and to my right, Brian's left, our former producer, current co-host, Chad. Producer, Chad. Hey, Chad. What's up, Bricks? <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> What's up with you guys? <laughs> when I'm the voice of reason, something's wrong. It's almost as if this place, it's taking a hold on you. I mean, you say increase <laughs> intensity, and that's just everything encompassed. Fun fact, <laughs> we're doing a special recording on location at the Overlook Hotel. No, we're not. Brian's drinking alcohol. <laughs> Brian, I thought you were sober. And, and Chad. My finger's talking. <laughs> 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 This is Taurus. Tony. <laughs> so good. Doesn't he sound like Kane? Let's go, Master The pro wrestler used to use that like voice boxing. I don't know boxing. what it was. I thought at the very end where he's screaming red rum, red it rum. doesn't even sound like him. It sounds like a completely different person. Like Linda Blair. Red rum, red oh rum. Oh, my God. When he's shaking and like the drools come out of his mouth, I just wanted to slap him. And I what's up with oh. his stupid fucking haircut? He's like, all of a sudden, his so hair hard. is just like he's got like a bowl cut going on. So oh, rad. Yeah. It's weird. You got, I think that it was meant to disguise his furrowed brow <laughs> like i was looking at it, i was like how do you know what emotion that child has you can't see his eyebrows <laughs> so anyway gang it's the shining it's a, i'm actually very excited about this one having read the book this is probably top two of my all-time favorite stephen king novels so it's, i think it's my number one yeah because yeah, he one favorite. realized that if he keeps the cast down it's more interesting yep it's he maybe also laid off on a lot of the booze yeah <laughs> or leaned into it hard i mean that's kind of but my first favorite is of course pet cemetery and it's very similar why they're both successful right. small cast family you care about the people versus like salem's lot i don't give a flying fuck you mean about to tell me you don't care about the lady who eavesdrops in on everybody's calls nope that was i my don't favorite even care part. about mr barlow <laughs> but one thing that i will say I read Dr. Sleep before this just because I wanted to have a full kind of perception of everything, right? And that is indicative of everything that's wrong with Stephen King's work. It is so bloated with so many extra characters, but it's not bad. It's just a complete genre shift. That movie is more of a genre shift than like Alien to Aliens, in my opinion. That it almost is like an X-Men movie. Yes. 
So we'll get into that, obviously, as next month we do the Stephen King adaptation for Dr. Sleep, which comes out in theaters. Right. Yeah. When we talked about doing Dr. Sleep, I said I read the book and I was like, I don't remember much because I just remember disliking it so much and probably because <laughs> of the tone, like it just switches so hard. And that's a really good way to sell you on the movie, right? Right. Exactly. And I was like, <laughs> oh, great. But I will reread it and give you an honest opinion. Well, in the afterward, Stephen King acknowledged that he can't recreate that. And it, you know, I could see how it come across as like apologetic, like, oh, this book sucks, but you're getting what you pay for. But he's also kind of talking about like he's a different person. You're a different person. You're not going to be the same person that he approached with The Shining. And I thought that was pretty fair. Uh, you know, it basically, it's just fluff. And it's right. so like referential to like they reference the Avengers and Ford focuses right. and stuff. It just feels so different. Like, sure, some of those things are referenced in the book as far as like what car they drive and everything, but it feels like it's so it feels lived in, whereas now it feels like it's trying to be topical. And it's like an old man trying to like turn his seat back around, like, hello, fellow kids. With his hat backwards. But let me rap at you for a second. <laughs> skateboard that he doesn't know how to ride. Let Uncle Stevie. <laughs> But I feel like the tone still could have been still could have been there in Doctor Sleep, more like the tone of Sixth Sense or something. Well, it's funny. The thing I like most about it, that Doctor Sleep, almost wasn't in the book. It's his son Owen who actually convinced him to make Danny Torrance hit rock bottom as an alcoholic. Right, and that part's good. That's I the best part, it. right? Because it also that makes the resolution of the book is better than the climax of the book. By a country mile. Right. Oh, obviously, this isn't the Doctor Sleep podcast. I haven't read any of this, so you guys are ruining all of it. Fuck boys. Not really. Danny's an alcoholic. For the literally end. the first page. Hey, yeah. Relax. <laughs> it's Stephen King. He'll use the N word. He'll use the F word. And yeah. That's a, that's a story. Okay. <laughs> and women it. are way over sexualized and always talking about their breasts. Yes. Jesus Christ. <laughs> One lady is kissing her daughter's head because she's like crying. And she's like, because it was the only part of her body she could reach with her face pressed between her breasts. And I'm like, motherfucker, what? <laughs> but anyway, I'm truly not spoiling anything. No, Danny Torrance good, is an good. alcoholic from I, page one. I probably won't remember. I think it's in the middle of a bender, too. Yeah, yeah. It's it's weird. But, but we're doing the, the Shining, obviously. We're doing The Shining. We're covering the book that we had read as well as the original, not the shitty fucking made for TV <laughs> one that Chad liked to reference earlier. But we will absolutely be touching on that. Uh, when it comes to <laughs> next year. Yeah. Mark my words, a year from now, we're going to be doing the Shining TV series, and it's the funniest thing in the world. I love it. It is so <laughs> fucking terrible. I love it. It's such a ripoff and terrible. <laughs> Shall we get into trivia? Yeah, let's, let's do, it. do it. All right. Where do you think he got the name The Shining? It's time for Jake's Karaoke Corner. Going to do some John Lennon instant karma. And we all shine on. You remember that song? No. I thought it was a Beatles song. Nope. No idea. Mm, no. It's a good song. I don't think I've ever heard it. It's really annoying, the jangly part, until it gets to that chorus. And you're like, oh, it's so full. And you're like, I would just listen to that chorus five times and be done with it. Huh. Do you so, you, in, of course you don't know it, but I'm in, surprised Brian so doesn't know it. So in the song, it, literally he just got the name from that. There's nothing referencing towards like people beings psychic or having extra powers within the song it's just shine on he just took that yeah so the lyric is we all shine on so it starts off instant karma is going to get you going to knock you right on your head you better get yourself together pretty soon you're going to be dead what in the world were you thinking laughing in the faces of love what on earth are you trying to do it's up to you yeah you so it's kind of referential to Jack Torrance and the fact that like he's I mean I can kind of see it like that. Absolutely. Yeah, we all shine on like the moon and the stars and the sun. We all shine on, everyone come on. But <laughs> I, I mean I think that the name is really cool. I like that it's vague. I like the term the shining. 
better than anything else. It's cooler to me that it's not like telekinesis or pyrokinesis like they reference in Carrie. It makes it more mystical and less scientific, which is right. oddly one of the things I liked about Carrie was that they made it scientific. Right. So it's, I guess, the best of both worlds in his writing style. I mean, I definitely like the name in that within the film and even in the book. It's not heavy-handed on why it's called The Shining. It's literally literally just referenced like one or two times by right. by Dick in the very beginning, and that's it. Yeah, you're like, okay, that's cool. And sometimes you get go through these films where they it's like a specific phrase, and then somebody <laughs> says it in like such a cheesy way, and with you're a wink like, and a nod. You mean <laughs> The Shining? <laughs> yeah, I get it. That's what it's called. But yeah, you know. I don't know. I always thought of the title as like as in The Shining, as you're just getting like a little glimmer of the past, future, whatever, like huh, a flare, like you know? ripples in a pond. Kind yeah, of. exactly. Yeah. Where you I see like, like the light bouncing off of it and you're kind of like just getting a very small picture of what it is. And that's kind of how I always thought that it was for, but it could just be me. I like it. There are certain visual cues of like glares and stuff like that. I think that are good. Shall I give you the trivia about John Lennon when it comes to Stanley Kubrick? Do it. Yeah. Can you tell me who he is first? Stanley Kubrick? No, John Lennon. Are you? <laughs> shut <laughs> up, you <laughs> fucking you son of a bitch. <laughs> So John Lennon obviously was in the Beatles. The Beatles? Ever heard of it? Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So in the Beatles, they apparently approached Stanley Kubrick, legitimately this happened, about starring in The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I believe they were supposed to be hobbits, but they had multiple meetings about it. Nothing was ever set in that stone. That is so exciting. Ooh. But John Lennon was a diehard Stanley Kubrick fan, so much so that it is, according to everybody around him, he watched 2001 A Space Odyssey every single week. What? That seems a little strange. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, there's one thing in liking a dude, but there's another in watching a fucking movie every single week. Yeah, I can't even think of one movie that I would watch every single week. Well, it's also pre-Star Wars and stuff, so... Yeah. And also, Star Trek wasn't in syndication, so... How many so. VHS tapes do you think he ran through? I don't know. He probably didn't have VHS. He probably had a home theater, like you know, <laughs> a projector. That's probably true. He also like lived in a bed without leaving it for like a year or something weird. Really? What? Yeah, something That's with, weird. with Yoko. I think it was maybe it was a month, but yeah. Huh. So oh, also, it should be said that Instant Karma is the Yoko years. So it, I understand why you didn't like it or <laughs> okay. know it. Take the next one, dog. So Warner Brothers apparently bought the rights to the book and screenplay that King wrote himself. And did you know Stanley Kubrick never fucking read it? Good. Yep. Just kidding. <laughs> he read the book and because he would go through books and books and books. Because if you look like Clockwork Horns, obviously based on a book, 2001 based on a book. And so his assistant, allegedly, she would know if he was interested in something because if he didn't like something in the first 10 pages, he'd chuck it at the wall. So she'd hear, <laughs> boom, <laughs> and so That's he's so reading good. for a long period of time and she comes in, she's like, yo, dog, what's that shit? And he's like, it's Stephen King, it's the tightest fucking shit. <laughs> and I wish I could do that while I was in school. Just like fucking yeah. get, teacher gives me something, I'm like. This is fucking garbage. And just throw it <laughs> against the wall. Catcher in the Rye sucks. <laughs> Chuck. Funny enough, Catcher in the Rye is in this movie. Do, 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 do. It's fun. I like it. So, Chad, you the next one. What? <laughs> just kidding. The Shining posters in Kubrick's final film, Eyes Wide Shut. Cruz looks at the near club in the theater glass case. Yeah. Do you want to uh, read that like, like a normal person? <laughs> no, that's why I told you guys to do it. <laughs> Okay, I'm digging over. 
Yeah, have you seen the poster for this movie? I'm sorry. The poster <laughs> fucking sucks. I hate this poster so much. It looks like, you know when Michael Scott says it looks like a baby monkey did? Like, that's what this poster looks like. It is fucking terrible. <laughs> Especially when you look at the other options that he was presented. It is so ba- butt-fucking raw dog crazy to me that he picked this poster of all of them. Thoughts? Anyone? It's it's it says the words the shining and it's like the weird cartoon of the kid's face and you're like looking up his nose and it's got like kind of the pixelated dot kind of drawing where it looks like Jumanji. I don't remember Zathura, that. Zathura, anyone? No, oh, yeah. nothing. Like High you. energy. <laughs> no, I honestly I've never seen Eyes Wide Shut. Oh, it's about, it's about the shining poster. Okay, yeah, right. It's in the Eyes Wide Shut is where Cruz sees it, right? Yeah. And but have you seen the poster? I have not. Okay. That's so, what I was not the poster that you're talking about. I think I've seen like a revised poster. Oh, okay. I have not, no. Hmm. Interesting. That's fucking weird. It looks like a Chucky doll. It's terrible. It's the worst. Oh, I don't mind okay, going okay. on. Like the font style is cool. I like the staunch with the black and yellow, but that face is terrible. Yes. Like, it looks like an alien. Like I get the perspective supposed to be, it looks but like, like a Chucky eyes doll. are weird. Yeah, yeah, totally. I see that. <laughs> right. So in the book, Wendy asks if the ghosts are not in the Algernon Blackwood sort of way. Which Blackwood wrote the Wendigo, also used in the Pet Cemetery, yep. and which we also touch topic in on our cryptids. Battle of the Cryptids. The North American heavyweight champion of the world, the Wendigo. Yeah, it's super cool. I mean, Stephen King is very open about his references. You know, like Bram Stoker's Dracula, obviously, being a huge influence on Salem's right. Lot and stuff. So this is one of the stronger Do you instances. think a Wendigo could have a presence over an entire hotel? I don't know if that's even a thing. Hmm. Well, that would be a very interesting concept. So like the ghost that's possessing or the entity that's possessing is, is also taken over by the Wendigo. That could be a right, very cool. Right, right. I'll draw it. <laughs> I'll totally draw a fucking hotel with antlers and a skeletal face, long clawed ass finger. That sounds rad. Why not? Trademarked. Say it. So that nobody can fuck with us. TM. TM. Copyright. <laughs> 2019. There's a theory that Jack is signing a deal with the devil when he takes the job from Ullman, and that's why all this stuff happens. I don't believe that, but that, I thought it was interesting I mean, and worth mentioning. It just seems like something that somebody just made up. Yeah. Well, There's the, nothing that references anything in the book. Uh, kind of. I've, I've read some essays on the topic. The only reason I'm presenting it now before we get into the movie is just so when we go through kind of the slave I play, think about it in the backdrop. And there's okay. some kind of stuff. But I think it works as a, a better metaphor. The fact that he's so desperate for monetary compensation to pay for his wife and kid, he's willing to right. put them in mortal peril, right. even like ignoring logic and sense. One of the different monsters that comes up within the book, other than the stupid fucking topiary animals, <laughs> which I agree they are pretty ridiculous. Super weak. They never touch base on what the creature is in the cement tunnels. Yeah. They always just say it's some it's like a dark place. The but thing they, they say. They don't yeah. ever say what the fuck it is, which is it's kind of interesting, right? I pontificated that it was a, a reference to Pennywise. I don't think it really was because that book came years later, but it's fun to add to the lore and think, oh, yeah, because it's different. It's not an entity of the hotel to me the way it is. It seems so dissociative because there's nothing like it in the hotel. Whereas no, it yeah. just I mean, just like the tunnel that Danny dug himself into, there's apparently like dead kids 
in this like uh, the voices yeah right? right and there's like dead leaves that he hears crumpling but there's nothing referenced to that within the hotel or anything yeah. so who's to say and the things that are you know quote unquote scary about the hotel are some of the weaker elements like the hose don't care the toby oh. animals don't care i like i think one of the strongest parts for me in this movie is that the sense of disorientation and claustrophobia i think really they do a very fair job of doing so it's the literally that the walls are closing right. around you as opposed to like a fucking snake hose who gives right. a shit i mean i feel like that's also maybe just more so danny's overactive imagination being a seven-year-old right and then you can also think to yourself it's coupled with his imagination and this wendigo i'm gonna just say it it's the wendigo (laughs) fucking attacking him yeah one thing that i really like that's different within the house that's maybe not supposed to be so scary but in my mind i'm putting myself in their shoes is the elevator that would freak me the fuck out where you're just sleeping and it, you know it's us three and that's it. Yeah. And then you hear the elevator going up and down. That would just fucking send chills down my spine. And then to find like the confetti. Yeah. I think that's a really cool element. Absolutely. But also a giant river of blood. Also kind of scary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you guys notice that in Toy Story 3 at Sid's house, there's the shining carpet? Oh, is yeah. that really? Yep. And the director oh, of fun. Toy Story 3, Lee Unrick, un. The director of Toy Story 3, <laughs> Lee Unkrich, runs a website dedicated to the training. Nice. That's pretty cool. So it's not like a happenstance. It's very deliberately putting Stanley Kubrick works into a children's film. I love it. So Stanley Kubrick's daughter, Vivian Kubrick, did a making of documentary on a show, Arena. Is it Arena? Yep. Arena. Stanley it's has... A B- his- it's B- technically, it's BBC's The Arena. Oh, okay. BBC's The Arena. Stanley had his own cut where he was less involved. Producer chose Vivian's instead. Yeah. Wah, wah. Because <laughs> well, he wanted Stanley to be involved to show the process and he wanted to talk, like, show the behind the scenes from everything else, you know. But the whole point of, like, the, if you watch this thing, it shows him being very hands on and very just, it's, he's enigmatic. And I think he was kind of worried about kind of like showing how the sausage is made. Yeah. Hmm. Like he's taking over. Well, there's a very specific part where he like lashes out at Shelly Duvall, which is very interesting. It's before she runs out into the snow, right? So they're shooting out there. You see these big black bags on these giant armatures and there's fans. So it's blowing fake snow. And so he's got it all queued up and he's like, all right, Shelly on the radio. And she it cuts to her and she's like kind of panicky and she has this fluttery voice. She's like, I've been waiting for so long. I had one bite of soup and now he's yelling. And it literally shows him come up to the doorway and be like, you have all of these people out here waiting. <laughs> but then you find out he did all of that to her on purpose and she even like was like revered him in a way for getting like the best performance. So we'll get into it, but he was a fucking terrible person to, to her specifically more so than anyone else. Which now going back and looking at the film makes a lot of sense as far as her maybe acting and not so much acting. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. That sounds pretty believable because she was terrified. Yeah, Yeah. A lot of people kind of, blew up the fact that she was ended up being on a Dr. Phil show in the, her later years where she talked about struggling with mental illness. But I don't think that that was obviously like shell shock from this or post-traumatic stress from this. Right. I so people that, were playing like the fucking the string. They're connecting dot A yeah. to dot B and they're like, well, it must be because of this. And you're like, well, there was also like 40 years in between. So who <laughs> the fuck knows? Exactly. Some other good shots from the documentary. 
she filmed Jack Nicholson getting ready for the here's Johnny scene. He like runs in place and he's muttering to himself and he's like gesturing with the ax and getting really into it, which is super cool. There's a fun little scene where you're like scene, a fun little shot where Jack Nicholson's talking to somebody on the phone, which it's just nice to see him as a person, you know, because he's so because on. He, he, yeah, he's so on throughout the film where you're just like, this guy is a fucking prick, which actually, if you think about it, I think Jack Nicholson was kind of that guy. Yeah. In a lot of ways. I recall, <laughs> he wasn't exactly the nicest of fellas. Yeah. He doesn't seem to be too far off of this character. <laughs> yeah. There's a good part where uh, Benjamin Sherman or Scatman Carruthers talks about how he thought that working with Danny was, quote, beautiful. And he talked about thanking the Lord to work with such beautiful people. And this dude is like so nice, right? At one part, Stanley Kubrick, we'll get into it later made him reshoot something 148 times and he literally broke down crying going like what do you want from me like <laughs> a nice dude i like he is the, my favorite part of this film in a lot of ways so i know you don't like when he meets an untimely demise contrasting to the book i actually think that that's one of the things i like most about it because yeah which i mean we we'll discuss a little bit later yeah. but yeah it's one thing within the book that's different to the movie that I didn't particularly like. You get to see Jack Nicholson mark his lines the way he saw Boris Karloff do it, which I think is cool. Just if you know your Universal Monsters history, that's huge in, in importance to me. Jack Nicholson also is seen running lines with Stanley Kubrick as he types on his yellow typewriter. Uh, there's just a lot of fun stuff. It's a very visual thing, and you can find it, I think, even on YouTube. So this is apparently what you were talking about with Duvall. Apparently she became ill, right? Just from all of the torment that Kubrick was putting on her, she pulled out chunks of her hair, which sounds fucking crazy. Yeah. And Kubrick even acknowledged he didn't envy her. Like that's, he knew what he was doing to her. It was very systematic. Like it was not happenstance at all <laughs> because this guy also used kid gloves when dealing with Danny Lloyd, the little boy in the film. He had no idea he was in a horror movie until he was 16 or 17 and he actually saw the movie. Oh, that's wow. Crazy. That's weird. He had no idea. He what? didn't even know that Jack Nicholson was chasing with an axe. <laughs> That's so weird. Yeah, it, he was very, very kids' gloves with this kid, like little like boy. What the hell does this kid think he's doing with his finger and that voice? I don't know. He thought like, maybe it was a comedy or something. But Stanley was very good to him, made sure he was in a comfortable, safe space, but still got a good performance out of him. Yeah. So he knew what he was doing to Shelley Duvall. This was not just something like, oh yeah, well whatever, we'll see what happens. That's very impressive. Here's a little small tidbit that I just absolutely fucking annoyed me just because there's these little tiny things, but apparently there's a good reason behind it, right? Where it's 2.17 the entire time with the yeah. book. And I was like, what? No, it's <laughs> it's 2.37. And then they're like, no, it's 2.17. And it's like, no, it's, it's 2.17 in the book, right, is what it should be. But apparently... Something to do with the hotel? Is that what happened? Yeah. So the hotel didn't have a room 237, but it did have a 217. So they didn't want to scare people away from 217. Fun fact, the hotel's most requested room, 217. 217 right. <laughs> Come on, guys. But they actually have a whole documentary called Room 237, which deals with a lot of the conspiracy theories. So we'll get into that in a bit. One thing I really want to touch on was Nicholson's approach to the film, because obviously he's a very alpha, extra kind of personality, and then St Stanley Kubrick kind of the same way, and he talked about actually kind of liking that abrasion with his director because he wanted to be changed. He didn't want to do the things that were natural to him because he didn't want it to be, quote, predictably my work, end quote, which I think is pretty important to show. Like, he was very conscious, and this is early in his career. I mean, you're not talking about many years before he's doing Easy Rider, and he's just a background character, basically. Right. 
So essentially, he's writing that alpha mo- uh, motto, like a uh, mantra, I guess you can say it, right? Where he's like, I'm a type A. Kubrick's obviously a t- type A. We're going to butt heads, but it ends up working. Yeah. And he talks about Stanley, quote, he's doing exactly what he feels he should be doing, end quote. It's like your Dr. Doom syndrome, right? What makes him such a compelling villain? Because he thinks he's doing the right thing. And Kubrick is resolute and he's just doing it and trampling over people in, in times. But he's also very gracious. Like Diane Johnson, who was his co-writer for the film, he insisted that she get a writing credit hmm. when it was a Stanley Kubrick production because he still you know, was good to her, all things considered. Now, when it comes to... All right. In the book, obviously, the hotel isn't built on a Native American burial ground. That plays in pretty significantly later on in the movie uh, when you have a whole parable for the Indian genocide or Native American genocide, which is interesting. And I've often wondered after reading this if Pet Cemetery was almost a fuck you, Stanley. If I want to do a story about Indian burial grounds, I'll do it and it'll be great. Right. That makes sense. There are also some other ones that I think are really dark. So there's one theory that is completely built around World War II, which is basically saying that Stanley Kubrick is a secret Nazi or something. It's bizarre. Typewriter is a German typewriter, right? It is an Adler, which in German is Eagle. The license plate frame has a picture of an eagle. Jack is wearing a shirt with an eagle Hmm. and eagle obviously having reference to Nazi symbolism. Also, there's reference to number 42. If you notice, Danny is wearing a jersey that has the number 42. He and his mom are watching a movie, The Summer of 42. I feel like it would make more sense if it was 77. That's just me. Well, it, no, no, 88. I'm sorry, 88. Well, yeah, 1942 is when the start of the Jewish genocide oh, starts. okay, okay. The I was thinking 88 because of HH. Eight is, the eight, eight is the number in which H is in the alphabet. So oh, for HH, Hail 88. Hitler? Yes, exactly. Oh, that's... I get you. Yep. I think I've seen somebody with that tattoo, and I think we both know who that person is. Probably. And I think I'm very happy that person's got their ass kicked many times in front of me. So, fuck <laughs> that. I don't know on. who you guys hang out with. This is weird. Well, well he was... High uh, school was a fun place. And oh. also, he was homeless, so he would lurk around everyone all the time, basically like begging. Um, it was weird. Yeah. Maybe I'll cut this part out of the episode. That's an odd one. <laughs> but also, if you multiply... So, when it comes to the number 237... If you multiply two times three times seven, you get 42, which is, again... Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So I think it's kind of bullshit, but it's interesting enough. Now, here's the part with Jack Nicholson's hair that you mentioned being crazy. (laughs) At the end of the film, he obviously ends up in the portrait of all the people on July 4th, 1921, I think. It zooms from his face into a bigger version of his face. And it is theorized that the airbrush and the style of his face is specifically done so, so his hairline on the smaller version becomes a Hitler mustache on his larger that face. Is fucking <laughs> stupid. Yep. There are literally people uh, I've seen online who have taken a still image from the movie, one frame of film, and written an entire essay about it. I could go so far into the weeds about the craziness of this film wow. that we would be doing a seven-part episode. We're going to try and keep it base. But if you like what you're hearing, People, read it. And also, if you don't, some of the stuff is so fun to read because it's like, okay, I might be crazy and weird and neurotic, but at least I'm not that fucking When people guy. have enough time to write thesis statements or thesis papers about the supposed Hitler stash <laughs> on Jack Nicholson at the end of The Shining, they have way too much fucking time on their hands. Too much time on my hands. <laughs> exactly. 
So apparently some people theory that he used the film to reveal Illuminati. Others that he was 33 degree Mason trying to begin New World Order. Yeah, the New World Order being, of course, Hulk Hogan, Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, and X-Pac. WCW. Yeah. Can't forget X-Pac. <laughs> Wolfpack for life. <laughs> so shall we get into the stab? Just, do you, you didn't catch a damn word of what we just said, did you? No. God damn it. We even tried to avoid the stupid music references for five <laughs> seconds and give it to you. X I mean, gonna I, give it to you. Oh, okay. I know that. Okay. There we go. <laughs> All right. So. We get into the statistics. Budget nineteen million dollars makes forty four million seventeen thousand three hundred and seventy four, and its total domestic gross forty four million seven hundred eighty one thousand six hundred ninety five. I don't know how those numbers are so different, but that's two different websites that have said that. So huh. there you go. I don't know how your total gross for oh, it's lifetime gross. Excuse me, I am a dummy. It's pretty so penny. The competition, which I feel like is kind of two different spectrums here. You have Carney. The Gong Show movie, but then you also have in May, Friday the Thirteenth, Star Wars Emperor uh, Emperor Strikes Emperor's <laughs> New Groove, <laughs> Star Wars Empire Strikes Strikes Back. So yeah, two very different spectrums there. This it feels like a very very seventies movie, but it is an eighties movie, and I think yep. a lot of people don't recognize that. Yeah, but it, some of the fashion and stuff I think is meant to be quaint and rural and not this is not your Andrew Lloyd Webber adaptation where it's like everything's so stylized and right. people wear shoulder pads <laughs> you know <laughs> but it's also there's a lot of conspiracy theories as far as Kubrick's work and involvement being you know, filming nearby when it comes to Empire Strikes Back and weird stuff abounds with this movie the runtime 146 minutes we can all agree even if it's beautiful, there it is, is excruciating. F- so much fat to trim. Yes, which is crazy because they do so many time jumps from like months back and forth, day to day. Yeah. And th- honestly, the jumps, some of the, like, uh, the closest thing to a jump scare you get in the first half of the fucking movies, those title credits where it goes, boom, boom. Yeah. Right. <laughs> one month later. And what's really crazy too is going from reading the book to right after watching the movie, I feel like there's a lot of stuff they could have trimmed from the movie, but at the same time, there was stuff that I feel like they should have shoved from the book into the movie. So I'm like, I don't know, trim out some nastiness from the movie, but shove some of that empty space with some of the extra stuff that they just didn't really touch on. Like why Jack got I said expo, uh, expelled. expelled. Yeah. I'm like, he got expelled from work. <laughs> he oh, got fired. Man. No, he got fired. Why did he get you fired? Fire. Yeah, why did he get fired? Maybe a little backstory bet- with his parents. Not necessarily like a full fucking 20 minute dialogue about it. But yeah, his dad was an alcoholic abuser just like him. So there's right. a cycle, but nothing. I don't necessarily need the backstory there. I like his personal backstory, but I, I, you guys have heard me complain about it. like I don't like Rob Zombie's Halloween. I don't like when the character gets an excuse, but I do like the idea of you know you seeing this dude's already had a temper. It right. has already had drastic right, repercussions right, right. on his life. Right. So I'll, uh, yeah. I'll meet you halfway on that. And, you, know, I mean, you, you can also see that this is the final attempt of making things right here. Right. Yeah. I've had so many opportunities to. To do right by my family. So I have to make this work. Yeah. Right. I think the right. step further for that as well is also saying he is accepting this job from a friend 
Right. And that's how he got this job. And it's his it's last chance. It's not necessarily like, I qualify for this. Exactly. Because they're like, yeah, judging from this. Right. This is the last <laughs> handout for yeah. this guy. Yeah. And he knows it. So, yeah, it's a lot more desperate. And showing that he has a temper when he was not drinking was important. Because he beats the crap out of the kid when he was sober. Yep. So that's but also then another in the movie. Part. They obviously change it to where he stumbles in at three a.m. or whatever, right? Which is a very different choice. And he doesn't break the arm; he just dislocates it. Which I was like, that's oddly less. Yeah, severe. he dislocates the shoulder compared to breaking the arm. Yeah, I mean that's a, a way different image to me. But what do I know? Yeah. So it's obviously directed and written mostly by Stanley Kubrick. Obviously, Diane Johnson had some influence. Did you guys know Stanley Kubrick? His interest in film comes out of his dad getting him a camera when he's 13. And by the time he was 17, he was a staff photographer for Look Magazine. <laughs> but this dad's all about framing and visual components. But he's also fucking wicked smart. He would do like computational physics as like a recreational thing. He very much an Einstein when it came to like performance in school. Couldn't care less. Couldn't get into a good college. But then he was like, you know, genius. Hmm. When it comes to his writing style... He obviously did 2001 A Space Odyssey, Clockwork Orange, Full Metal Jacket. And he talked about the difficulty working with the book because he said the, the action in the book was, quote, insufficient, end quote. I feel like the action in the movie is insufficient. <laughs> maybe I, that's just me. Maybe they're both insufficient, I think. But we're also looking at it from modern standards. I mean, that's true. remember that there was a time in American culture where somebody saying, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, made people fucking <gasps> faint, right? <laughs> that's what I mean. At yes. the time this movie came out, it's crazy. But then also, like, I don't know. It's so weird to me to think that Friday the 13th is that close to this movie because it's like that is so much more overt. And right. this that, I think that's one of the things that makes this so unique for its time period even was it was conceptual horror. It was like highbrow horror in a genre that was kind of tawdry. I mean, think about Friday the 13th. You're talking about Sean Cunningham who made porno with Wes Craven. So <laughs> yeah. I don't think it was viewed as high art. Dark, there was some dark times. Yeah, truly. <laughs> Great times. And even look at like the old <laughs> Universal Monsters. People weren't looking at it as art. It was fluff and the comics were fluff and it was just it, insubstantial, I'll say. Yeah. We've all talked about it. And I think we all have like varying opinions on like this movie with that sort of look. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that he really hammered on was he wanted this movie to be very different than the book in the sense that you don't know if everybody's just crazy. You don't know if there's actually a supernatural element until that latch opens. So think about the movie from that perspective. Sure, we're sacrificing some of these things, but as we get into it, just remember, this is a conscious choice by the guy who wanted you to go, hey, wait a second. Are, is this really happening? Did the kid really hurt himself? Because none of these things, none of these ghosts or anything do anything that lasts. That's really crazy to think about that. It, all it takes is just one single latch yeah. the entire time because all of this could potentially be something that's a figment of somebody's imagination. And that's why they Until do it that way. Until he's locked away and Danny and Wendy are completely on the other side, not wanting anything to do with Jack. And he has this conversation with Grady and you're like, okay, well, he can be theoretically having a conversation with himself until the latch. Exactly. So that makes perfect sense. Yeah. I'm surprised that they don't talk about like the door to the room opening though too. Because the key's already in the door and it's open and that's when Danny goes in, right? Because in the book, well, he the steals ball. the key, There's but he doesn't do it. There's a ball that rolls towards him. Right. Yeah. But the point is, is that you don't ever see the door open itself. That's true. Yeah. Okay. That's the big distinguishing factor. And also, like I said, nothing that the ghosts or apparitions or visions do has a lasting impact, right? As far as you see, when the girl's blood is all over the stuff, it doesn't stay there. It disappears. When you have right. Bear Boy blowing the other dude, 
doesn't stay there. Like there's the no cum stain. Stay, though. Who, who's but this? that could be him doing it to himself, yeah. which yeah. is specifically referenced. And also, right. yeah, who's to say Danny doesn't have a fit? Go grab room two seventeen and open it himself. Right. And then be like, oh my God, it's open. What in the fuck's going on? <laughs> well, yeah, because right? in the book, like Chad said, he steals the key and he does it. So the fact is, is like his perception yes, might be different. Exactly. Maybe he has a lapse in Tony, the finger tickler who lives in the tummy <laughs> does it. <laughs> so we move on. In the book, Stanley Kubrick adapting the sublime, it specifically says he refused to read Stephen King's draft. I wanted to make sure people knew I read books about this. So that's why I might sound a little crazy and depraved at this point. But you know, I have read everything from fascism to molestation about this fucking movie. We'll get into it. Buckle your seatbelts. And according to the cinema guide of Stephen King, quote, one of the principal issues in Kings are shining is that writing is an autobiographical analysis, a theme taken up in other things such as misery and bag of bones. But in Kubrick's rendering, this deep bond between author and story is lost, substituting a much more objective interest in the depiction of fright. That's something we keep talking about with this movie is we're not getting to know what's going on in Jack's head. Jack is too fucking cerebral a character to have him played by some underst- like understated, muted actor. Right. You don't have Gregory Peck playing him. You have to have a Jack Nicholson because you don't get, like, unless you, you're doing it over. You don't have that internal thought process going right. on. There, of- right. There's so much facial expression with Jack Nicholson. I think that just helps every little aspect no, absolutely, of it. Absolutely. And that's always the difficulty between bridging a book with the movie is you have to know what to add and what not to add. You have to have a, an actor who can portray something that's going on internally exactly, on the outside. And right. that's what's so difficult. And Jack Nicholson yeah. killed it. We don't need some voiceover of like what's going on in his head, him right. talking to exactly. himself and all that. Yeah, it just doesn't work. It's like it's some weird thing where like it's like him in slow motion. And then it just yeah. like has like a backstory go on in the background. And then exactly. It'd be distracting. And right. it, it also it would fuck up the pace. Have you ever heard like a voiceover in like a very good action scene where somebody's narrating what they're doing in their head? Deadpool, maybe. But you see what I mean? Like it, it's so dissociating. But it's done as a comedy for that very reason. Exactly. That's yeah. what I was getting at. You yeah. want that depiction. It should like the thing should speak for itself. Right. And I think that's what Jack Nicholson does. And a lot of people get critical of his performance. He's like, oh, he's crazy from the start. He's desperate from the start, and that reads as depraved. But that initial scene, I think, is very good because even in the book, they talk about his insincere smile. So, right, I obviously. feel like, and I, I, honestly, it seems like he would be a recovering alcoholic. So it's maybe not necessarily him being crazy from the beginning, but just him being short-tempered because he wants to feel his vices. Yeah, and he's humiliated in the book. Oh, yeah. So even when he's in the interview, he's kind of like, oh, I would just want to fucking sock this guy. That's something that did Jack Nicholson read the book. No idea. I'm sorry. No idea on that. It's something where throughout the book, he is constantly reminding you as a reader that Wendy is undermining him over and over again. I mean, oh, maybe yeah. not so overtly as and the accusing very end, him, yeah. right? But it's like constant where she is the mom's planning. Exactly. Yep. I, I get it, Wendy. You don't need to explain it in that tone. Yeah. And she's like, "Well, I'm really not," but but, but she is. But she kind but of she has also, good reason. Yeah. yeah, need to because he's been an alcoholic, abusive right. drunk, and it's like you now are trying to function without alcohol, which is going to be very difficult. And there's not a lot of faith there. So Kubrick co-wrote the book with Diane Johnson. He almost did her book, The Shadow Knows. And they discussed, before even putting pen to paper, they discussed the movie for over a month. 
And then he had a team research hotel, that hotel specifically, for three months before they even did anything. Wow. Kind of nuts. So they would brainstorm using the Socratic method. I think this is really interesting. He would ask her, like, what would uh, Wendy wear? How would she respond to that? And they would have this whole kind of repartee going back and forth talking about these concepts which are executed in the film. And they also used a book called The Uses of Enchantment as a good starting off point in terms of the philosophy. And she said that, quote, the script was secondary to knowing who the characters were, what the events were, and what the exact function of every scene is. But obviously by our standards, you can cut it. But at that time, when you compare it to other films, like look at even Dirty Harry. There's like long establishing shots that take fucking forever. Editing wasn't the same as it is. So I think especially at the time, it was very innovative. Right. Yeah. So the music is by Wendy Carlos, who did Tron, Split Second, and A Clockwork Orange. Hell yeah. So she's one of the guys in Daft Punk, right? Something like that. (laughs) Tron Legacy. Uh Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Got you, motherfucker. I tried watching A Clockwork Orange the other day. Oh, yeah? What? (laughs) (laughs) Had you never seen it before? No, it had been a while. Oh, yeah. You definitely need subtitles. Yeah. It's very, very fucking strong accent in that. Is it cock? Is it, is it Cockney? I think so. It's definitely something. It's yeah. another weird one that I have no idea why. I've never seen it. Oh, I, uh, you're yeah, not. It's yeah. weird. It's a badge of honor movie. Yeah, so your merit anything. badge. Yeah. yeah, yeah, merit badge. There you go. Again, huge changes from the source material. I mean, even down to Smart Boy Alex. By the end of it, in the book, he like wants to have a kid, and in the movie, he like resuscitates his thirst for the ultraviolence and a real horror show. But <laughs> I do like the way that he creates slang. It reminds me very much of what Frank Miller would do in years to come when it came to like the Dark Knight Returns. So, I do think it's worth watching. The rape scene is pretty rough, it's but brutal. it's crazy because that's one of the most iconic scenes like in cinema history. It's the singing in the rain scene. I'm sure you're familiar with, which has only happened because Malcolm McDowell, that's the only song he could think of. And that's so dark. <laughs> he literally takes a giant ceramic dick and kills a woman with it. Well, now I'm interested. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what's that? Chad, put that erection away. Don't hit Brian in the head with your giant ceramic dick. Shall we get into nicknames? Dick names. Prick names. Jack Nicholson is Jack Torrance. I got nothing. Just Jackie Boy is what I was going to call I was going to say either Jackie Boy or... Johnny. Oh, here's Johnny. Oh, what well, Johnny's appropriate because his true name is John. Right, because I always got confused for a second there when he would like go off into his own brain when he'd say something like, "Oh, John Torrance, this or that." I'm like, "Wait, is it Jack or is it John?" I don't fucking get it. Yeah. Right. So he actually purposefully kept the backstory vague in dealing with the character because he wanted you to just always have that question: Does he have an excuse? Is he the victim? Is he the assailant? And I think that's pretty important. There was a, originally a backstory with Jack's dad and Wendy's mom, but Kubrick dismissed them as being, quote, irrelevant, which I think kind of goes to what I was saying earlier. In an er- essay from Ursula von Keats, she said that the removal of the flashback was a way of keeping the audience in the moment. There's yeah. no progressive of time in terms of a natural flow. It's always very abrupt. So you're reacting to the pace, which I think is pretty important. Yeah. yeah, I think a flashback would not be good for this movie. Unless it was super disorienting and really trippy, like, you know, when he's yeah. sitting there with his eyes like fluttering or whatever, like maybe he's like slipping in and out of time. Yeah. And I think Wendy's mother's backstory is just kind of weak, even in the book. It's completely unnecessary. She's meant to like castrate both Wendy and Jack in terms right. of like they're not capable 
but even though she had a daughter that died. <laughs> yeah, it is very uncomfortable. You talking about Wendy's mom? Yeah, yeah. Has got it going on. Yeah, it 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 was a little strange. She was essentially upset that Wendy stole the dad, right? But they they didn't really go much into it. Just that he was she was a daddy's girl. Electra complex. And it's essentially the same thing with with Wendy and Danny, yes. right? Where she has edible like, complex. She's so <laughs> funny how that works out, huh? She's so mad and angry that Danny always goes to the abusive fucking father. <laughs> so then we go to Shelley Duvall as Wendy Torrance, right? I kind of wanted to call her Winnie because I really love the scene where Dick Howard's are you a Winnie or a Freddie? And she's like, I'm neither. I'm a Wendy. <laughs> That's the prettiest of them. I was like, is it? <laughs> I, I wanted to call is. her Sweet Pea. Okay. From Popeye. That totally makes sense. <laughs> like a, yeah. I, it doesn't make reference. I think it's perfect. not reference to the movie like at all. But. I'm very happy with it. <laughs> I think that she was beautiful back in the day. It's <gasps> yeah. I, it's so weird. Chad and I have thought about this off air multiple times. Like I just think that she like has this very magnetic. Her face is like the most expressive thing in the world. I like robots that are just not expressive at all. Like so. succubus women who are uh-huh. going to be starring on Slashettes, <laughs> no, but Patreon bonus episode in October. What's really great about her in this role is that she is so completely opposite, but in a good way of Jack Nicholson, right? Because Jack Nicholson looks like the Hollywood actor, right? right. Where she, and I'm putting this very politely, <laughs> she does not look like that like beautiful goddess Hollywood actress, like, right? Well, King describes Wendy as being a blonde and she's very sexual and everything, whereas Wendy is covered from neck to wrist to ankle in, in like every fucking scene. <laughs> yeah. Everything. She's very, very reserved by you comparison. kind of get the feeling like Jack's thinking like, I could do better sort of a thing. Yes, you do. And like he's kind of like, I'm charismatic. Like I she's, can talk. But, but yeah. she's also safe. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Well, it's he's also true. stuck with a kid. His job sucks. So he's kind of like, I could ditch them and do amazing, but he has this like, I have to be good because my father was a shit Right, hole. right, right. right. I, I mean, I, I, I also like the fact, and this may be looking too much into it, the fact that she, like, did you guys notice her teeth? I'm making, probably <laughs> butchering the shit out of her, right? And this sounds really bad, but she, she doesn't have perfect teeth. Yeah. Right? And you noticed, I noticed it throughout the film, but that almost just adds to her character. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, they she's make made it look homely. Yeah, exactly. They yeah. definitely like push that in your face. A lot of people, including Stephen King. Stephen King says about her quote: "Her portrayal is uh, misogynistic. She's just there to scream and be stupid." So he's very, very critical. But in terms of a horror scenario, you need David versus Goliath. Why is Laurie Strode important? Because right. she is so much smaller and meeker than Michael Myers. And in this scenario, it's just Jack Nicholson. Until you see the latch flip, you don't even know if there's any supernatural force. It's just her husband. So she needs to be the David to get to the Goliath. It doesn't make sense to have her be fucking Jane, Queen of the Apes. She has to be somewhat sympathetic to evoke that because we don't have the fucking time to go back through the psychological trauma. And also, she's still despicable in her own way because she's rationalizing all of this terrible behavior. Right. Which is normal. Yeah. Normal psychology for someone in that situation. An abused victim, it completely does that. They excuse the behavior. You know, I only do it because I love you, baby. Regardless of how big or small the other person is that's doing the abusing, they're always going to look like the Goliath. Yeah. Right. But you're also hoping for her to step up and challenge him, which she 
does. Yeah, she does. It's kind of Stockholm syndrome. Right. But one critic wrote that she turned, quote, the warm, sympathetic wife of the book into a simpering, semi-retarded hysteric. <laughs> wow, that is fucking harsh. <laughs> Could not believe it when I read that. But I will say that he probably thinks that she's semi-retarded because she's enjoying The Catcher in the Rye, which is a fucking terrible book. If you like it, you're wrong. Let's move on to Danny Lloyd as Danny Torrance. They, uh, they did try to use a voiceover and a physical embodiment of Tony, but instead opted for the finger. And like I said earlier, didn't know it was a horror movie until he was 17. Huh. What's so great Bad about Bob. What's, so <laughs> great, what's so great about listening to the book and the way the narrator says like Tony's voice. Danny. <laughs> yeah, right. right. And then you hear <laughs> I'm the, falling and down then, a well, and Danny. Then, and then you watch the movie and it's like <laughs> Daddy's not here right now. You're like, what the fuck? He sounds like Mr. Bill in the fucking book, audio book anyway. But you're right. It's interesting because Tony is in the book, like almost a very far away shadow because Danny doesn't want to be able to see it as himself. Well, yeah. Tony is. It's him. Yeah. It's Daniel Anthony Torrance. That's where you get Tony from. Right. It's only the end of the book that you realize that. Everybody else is in the know on that, even the doctor, because the doctor says, you realize what's happening here. Right. And they're very aware that he is Tony, which I think is super interesting, which is one of the reasons they describe it. But yeah, in Doctor Sleep, I was almost sad that they didn't do it from the perspective of him in his teens talking to him, which, you know, I don't think it's a spoiler. It's just, I, I like the idea of it being not necessarily time travel, but like you said, like, well, at the end he gets rid of him kind of. Cause he's like, I don't need him anymore. I realize it's me. That's actually Tony, but in the but movie then in, in fucking doctor sleep, exactly. that's totally different. Right. Exactly. Like in the movie, it seems like he moves on and he's like reconciling. And then it's like, what the fuck happened here? <laughs> so he's clearly doc, right? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Okay. No that question. Scatman Carruthers is Dick Halloran. He's a scat man. Perfect. <laughs> Everybody studies one way or the other. <laughs> so in one draft, he actually arrived after Wendy killed Jack, and then he was taken over by the hotel and tries to kill Duval in, quote, an appalling figure of lunatic savagery. Well, that's what happens in the movie, or not in the movie, in the book. In the book, well, he's in the shed. Danny doesn't want to go into the shed. So right. there's a slight almost attempt. Happens. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So it's almost like a reference towards the book. Right. I think that's good. Yeah. yeah. I don't like the idea of the one black character becoming violent like that. <laughs> really? Why not? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it just I like the idea that he overcomes the impulse. I think that works. But yeah. it was just like when I read that, I was like, lunatic savagery. I was like, that seems oddly phrased there, Mr. <laughs> SS Officer Stanley Kubrick. 42. I see what you're doing. <laughs> I talked about this with Brian. I don't like how they downplay his character in the movie. In the book, he's like fun loving, living it up in Florida. And when you cut in the movie to him in Florida, he's just laying on his bed like Yeah, like uh, a like sickly hospice man. Yeah, watching exactly. TV. With a bunch of naked women on his wall. Yeah, hey, I wasn't complaining about that. Well, I mean, that part was fine. <laughs> well, also he sacrifices to get to Danny. In right. the book, exactly. like he is, he has a life. He right. has real things. He has to like come up with lies to get to him. Exactly. It's very important. I think that's just completely glossed over. Because for all you know, he had nothing better to do, and he was just in bed and in the warm weather for his arthritis. Like, I'm gonna go see a little white boy back. Yeah, that's why. Yeah, you say that. <laughs> I'm gonna defer all future African American voices to Chad, who is apparently an expert. <laughs> Barry Nelson played Stuart Ullman. 
uh, one theory uh, regarding this character. I'm not going to insist that we do a nickname for him. But when he and Jack shake hands, his outgoing paper tray lines up with his crotch in a very happy Walt scenario, if you know your Disney lore. Yeah. And people are trying to say that there's a homosexual implication there because two men are touching. Very, very <laughs> weird that people are taking that much attention to that bullshit. Okay. That's weird. Joe, I touch men uh, all the time. Ew. <laughs> Joe Turkle played Lloyd. One of the reasons that it is pontificated that he doesn't accept Jack's $20 bill later on in the film is because it's not backed by the gold standard, and that's why the gold room is literally gold. Apparently, there are production notes that show it was originally silver, but they changed it to gold because the Federal Reserve Bank, you white devil motherfucker, you better see the triangles and the all-seeing eye because the Illuminati are going to come and rip that tinfoil hat off your head. Sure. Uh, okay. Do you know any idea what I'm talking about? No. no. He's also in Blade Runner. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I love that movie, so I had to reference that. And uh, Does anybody there's, give a shit about no, any other characters? I was say, there's a lot of other characters on here. Uh, old woman in bath is nasty fucking titty lady. Other than that, there's a young girl who's good looking titty lady. Yeah. But I but no, not but great looking titty lady. Yeah, she's not interesting. Like they made lady. her they made sure she was like really tall to get this like lanky walk. It was, I mean, she plays it spooky being full naked, but sexy at the same time. It's very I interesting. It was really strange, though, how the young, good looking titty lady turns into the old, ugly looking titty lady that has long hair, but then it goes back to the bathtub and it's a short haired lady with titties. And you're like, that's not the same lady. This right? white devil's trying to step on my crazy theories. Yeah. There's a theory. That those are the Grady daughters, not the twins. Really? The twins are not twins in the book. You mean the boobs? I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Come play with us, Danny. He's like, floppity, floppity. (laughs) Yeah. The titty on the left is called flip, and the titty on the right is called flop. But uh, yeah, their last name is Areola. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah because i i know reading in the book they they weren't my name tw- is flip areola <laughs> i think i'd rather be flip areola than flop areola <laughs> <laughs> that's what i'm gonna put on your epitaph when you die <laughs> and michelle's gonna be like what you don't even have the authority to do that I'm like his epitaph shall read i'd rather be flip areola <laughs> jake will just be like the fucking um um, What's his name in Fear and Loathing? As your attorney, yeah. I do this. Benicio Del Toro? Yeah, exactly. Oh, for sure. Yeah, but uh, Acosta, I think. Dr. Yeah. Acosta. But uh, the point being, in the book, it is clear that they're about two years age difference, and it even seems that Allman refers to that in this movie. And so the fact that they have different hair and different aesthetics and that one is already out, there doesn't make sense that it would flash back right, like that, right, right. is that they're actually the Grady twins. And that the other ones are literally a physical embodiment of the parallel between Danny and Tony. Which is which is so strange, right? Because in the book, and this obviously goes back to like more so the history of the hotel that they don't really delve into, where you know that it's this like really wealthy lady who ends up just ODing in the bathtub. Yeah. Mrs. Massim K. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So shall we get into the sleigh by Oh no, we're recapitation. Chad, can you do the recapitation? Hmm. So, boy, Danny has the shining, meaning he can see the future and hear ghosts. Goes to a hotel that has a lot of bad history. Dad goes crazy, attempts to kill them both, freezes to death. The end. <laughs> but we all shine on. Perfect. Couldn't have said any better myself. And now, the sleigh by play, which is going to be a little different this week, right? 
We're changing it up a little yeah, bit. Yeah, we're going to try and focus more on fact elements rather than narrative elements, if that makes sense. So you'll see as we get into it. One minute, 14 seconds into this damn movie, did you notice the aerial shot has a shadow of the helicopter? No. Blew my mind because people are saying there's all this very specific referential you know, framing and all this stuff. But then how would a guy who's that meticulous let something that glaring you know, appear? And so this is my theory. Some of this stuff is deliberate. Some of it's not. But if you're a smart guy and people are saying that you put all this thought into it, you're going to go with it. And yeah. so he probably <laughs> just went with it. So a lot of this shit probably didn't mean fuck all. It just looked cool. I can see that. There are a lot of parts, though, that I think he took a lot of time on. Yeah, some of them. Like, for instance, there's the scene with Dick Halloran and Doc. Dick, Doc, Dick. But uh, <laughs> when they're having the ice cream together, in two separate scenes in that kitchen, you can see multiple knives pointing at Danny's head in a static shot, thus showing he's in mortal danger. I think that's very deliberate because who puts a knife rack on a pillar in a kitchen? Right. That's one of my ideas. Okay. So this is the very beginning of this movie. We already kind of all had different views on it. Yeah. <laughs> so fucking hated it. Yeah. And loved I it. loved it. <laughs> Whatever, guys. Two against one. Well, I yeah, like it. I guess I love it. <laughs> the big thing that I love is it establishes a sense of a disorientation and B isolation. Correct. Because when Jack gets to the interview, he says it only took only took three and a half hours. So you know that there is a sense of hopelessness that they are so far and apart from society. There, nobody's throwing them a lifeline. Right, and you're seeing high cliffs, narrow road, and you're like, wow, if this thing snows, even if it was a light snow, I still think you'd be like, oh crap, I don't want to drive yeah. this at all. I understand it establishes the setting, but at the same time. I just feel like the intro was just way too fucking long. And I, I don't care about having this super deep bass. Bom, 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 bom. I, no, right. just fucking have him show up to the hotel and be done with it. And I don't think it's just establishing that. It's like the tone of the whole movie kind of plays off this where it is a very strange uh, sound, but it's also like strange visually. It's disorienting. So yeah. I think that's what they're going for with like the very long panning shots of the going up the mountain. You know what it reminded me of? Midsummer. Yeah, in a lot of ways. Especially right? that Especially the wall of sound kind exactly, of thing. Yeah. Exactly. You guys went to see that without me? Yeah, it's not good, so don't worry about it. It's it's okay. Hey, you got to see Ready or Not without Brian, so how about you uh, simmer down? No. Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you did. I have video proof, fuck boy. <laughs> One of the things that Kubrick talks about in terms of his view of writing and concepts, he, he refers to the H.P. Lovecraft essay wherein he said, quote, in all things that are mysterious, never explain. So you never get a clear answer of what's going on, which I think one of the stronger elements of the book as well. There are no strict set of rules. You don't know what can and can't happen. So I think that bear that in mind from the very beginning, you're getting some weird stuff that they don't explain. For instance, the impossible window. Do you know what I'm talking about? No. No. What do you mean? Okay. So when Jack arrives at the Overlook, he goes for his interview with Stuart Ullman. So he goes into the room. Right. And as he's going through, he ends up at the office of the hotel manager. If you go by the geography of the hotel, there is no way that that room would have an open window. It would be enclosed on all sides. So the point is, from the very beginning, you track him walking through and if you think about the spatial elements of the hotel, that should be a wall. It's like a room within a room, right? Yeah. And so there should be no outside window looking out, but there is in that. Exactly. And it's a, a nice window. All the light from the it comes from a natural light source from there. That's and so from the very beginning, exactly, yeah. you're not meant to. 
it's supposed to be oddly disorienting. And some of the visual cues, how like you'll see images fade into each other. Like for instance, you have the ladder that the worker has matches the slope of the building on the exterior. There are certain cues like that go on like that. And then as you watch, for instance, when Danny is riding his tricycle around, the first time, very linear, makes sense. Yep. Each time thereafter, the architecture doesn't make sense. Like no hotel would be built that way. And it's very deliberately shot in a way to make you disoriented. But at that point, you have no official view that this is something supernatural. Right. Exactly. Which one thing I'm very grateful for when it gets to the maze later, they don't have the whole like, oh, the walls are moving. It's Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. I get it. <laughs> so after you get the long panning shot up to the hotel, you then get Jack, you know, doing the meeting. And when they show the giant room, you also get like the impact. He's kind of awestruck by how big it is. And you right. get the sense that he doesn't have the skills necessary to even take care of this place. Yeah. He has um, no relevant skills at all. Very right. much in over his head. Exactly. But then that, also, you never see him do any work in this entire book. Yeah. But that also can, you know, pay homage to the book. Exactly. As far as I got this from a friend. Yeah, as a handout. <laughs> Which I don't know how many times I've been in the industry that I'm in where there are people who know fucking nothing about what they're doing <laughs> and they're I don't want to say it engineers go outside <laughs> and they start pointing at things and they're like and this thing here goes to that thing there and you're like no no it doesn't you <laughs> just go back inside just read your books and do formulas do and- your fancy book learning there <laughs> fucker <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And so in the scene we talked about, it, he has this kind of sense of desperation. There's a lot of theorized tech, like, you know, conversation going on. You have the lackey come in who isn't even in that scene in the book. There's that bitterness. It's very weird, but I mean, it, it, I, I don't think it's probative to anything specific. I like more so in the book, Ullman being a fucking dick to yes. what he is now. Yeah. Right. I can agree. It's completely changed. So it very much changes the whole tone of everything. Right. Because he seems like a politician at this point, even so much so that people theorize that he has a toupee meant to resemble JFK. I don't know if that's okay. true, but that's. But it's also kind of weird because you're just like, why are you so happy to just give this guy this job when he has no real experience in this sort of thing? Yeah, it's kind of terrifying. Especially after. All right, sweet. You're hired. <laughs> yeah, especially after <laughs> telling him, like, oh, yeah, the last guy we hired murdered his family. That was such a strange thing to include, right? I yes. mean, obviously, they have to throw it out there to add some kind of details about the history, I guess, of the hotel. But you're like, oh, hey, you're hired, by the way. It's like literally right after you're hired. Yeah. I mean, so. it's understandable because it's the cabin fever sort of thing. Like, you really have to explain, you will not be able to leave this house. Right. Once and the snow starts. Was it established if he's the immediate predator? Would it be predecessor? No, he's no, not. It's a couple years removed. He okay. says, yeah, he says like in like 1970. So you pretty much ex- expect it's going to be a lot farther okay. away. And then we cut to, you know, him calling Wendy. He got the job. He's not going to be home. But you get Danny telling her, telling Wendy that that's why. So you get exactly. like that first shining. And then the second shining comes right after that, where he's asking Tony why Tony doesn't want to go to the hotel. Right. And he gets the visions of he gets the blood. Like, he starts seizing up. I mean, that blood happens at 11 minutes, 45 seconds into this movie. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. To get I, that visual. I didn't remember that at all. Yeah. I, I thought that it happened naturally way later. And you obviously get the twins and it's, mm-hmm. you know, this huge thing. Fun fact, the MPAA had a policy back in the day that in a theatrical trailer, you couldn't show blood. So Stanley Kubrick went to great 
extents to tell them that that was not blood, but rather rust water because <laughs> of the elevator. And they bought it and put and it in there. dummies uh, fell for it. Oh, how the times have changed. Huh? Yeah. And that scene took three different takes to shoot. And it took nine days to set up the jet each time. That's crazy. Yeah, to dry, paint, repaint, do all the other stuff. Yeah, nuts. That's awesome, though. And it is viewed as being the literal blood of the Indians because it is built on the Native American burial ground. So literally it descends into their corpses. And that is the oppressed people. What? Uh-huh. All and it's right. the, the doors remain closed. Why? As a symbol of our repression and our inability to talk about the mass genocide that the white man committed on this. I'll talk this. about it. I'll talk about it right now. Yeah. Then do it, motherfucker. <laughs> Let's hear your citations, bitch. Yeah, it happened. <laughs> Did you guys happen to notice that when the doctor comes to examine Danny, he, no pants have, dance? he doesn't have pants on? <laughs> what the fuck? And you're like, wait, what? Where is the part of the examination that requires him to not have his pants on? Shall I wait, get into the molestation that's subplot? That's not supposed to happen? <laughs> There is a theory that Danny is molested by Jack and that the fact that he's not wearing pants is a key element of it. I don't see that at all. It parallels him because he has his hands over his crotch. So the idea is that he might be entirely bare assed, such as the bear with a bear ass who is filleting <laughs> Horace Derwent. People are looking into way too much fucking stuff. Oh, it's nuts. So the bear, they say, is referential to the bear that Danny is lying on at this part of the book or excuse me, at this part of the movie because he, the, he's on a bear pillow. Also, the eyes of the bear, if you look at the catalog that that bear is from that has circular eyes, but in this they're viewed as a semicircle which is meant to reference the elevator and has a red mouth to mimic the blood from it. And when they show Danny the room that he's going to be staying in, there are two bears. One bear is standing and one bear is sitting showing that he is repressed and dominated by his domineering father who stands above him. Also, he puts Danny on his lap it is so weird that somebody took that much effort. There is so much more. It is super gross. Yeah, I think Let's, Elvis I, was actually staying in room 217 as well. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't know. I just made that up. But. Yeah. I mean, I could see that being an actual plot or subplot. Like, you know, he is abusive. Maybe he is a pedophile sort of a thing because he also doesn't really seem to care too much about Wendy. But he's yeah. gay. Yeah, that's the other theory, right? Because he's reading a Playgirl, and what's on the cover of that Playgirl magazine from I think it's January 1978? An article about why parents fuck their kids. Oh. It, an article about incest. Wow. Jesus Christ! It gets so deep. There's also an I'm idea not going down that rabbit. The hole. idea that he do, <laughs> there's no toilet paper in room 237 is also viewed as a link to the molestation. Huh? So why? much stuff. I clean up all the... Never mind. It's gross. (laughs) Okay, never mind. Super gross. So, yeah, to your point, the doctor is examining him. There's a dopey sticker on the door as they enter the room, but not as they exit the room, thus showing that Danny is no longer ignorant to what's going on. There is a puppet of Goofy on the wall, a marionette. It is wearing an orange undershirt as Goofy customarily does with denim vest and denim pants. If you look at Wendy's outfit, she is wearing an orange long sleeve undershirt with blue denim, thus showing she is not only a Goofy, but B (laughs) Jack's puppet because she goes into the next scene and she's willing to lie on his behalf to this doctor, diminishing the significance of the prior abuse with a smile on her face because she has Stockholm syndrome she has no idea what she can do to her defend herself. Meanwhile, I was just looking at her outfit like, what the fuck are you wearing? <laughs> and she says she's smiling and she's very self 
indulgent it's because so she's crazy. happy that he hasn't had a drink in only five months. Right. If you listen later, Jack says he hasn't had a drink in over a year. This anachronism, Jack can't even reconcile his own untruths to himself. He's lying to himself and making himself the suffering, you know, Which is martyr. an alcoholic's MO. Exactly. Right, right. Which again makes him just a vile piece of shit in the book or in the movie, but in the book, he's sympathetic. Right. What's, what's really cool about this scene in particular is it shows a stark contrast between her nonchalantly explaining how Jack basically broke this kid's arm and then the look of like complete shock and terror in the doctor's face as she's just like, I'm sorry, what? And she doesn't even say a word of rebuttal. Do you Which want happens so often. <laughs> Here's another one. In the hallway, there is a painting behind as they're walking towards the living room. It is of two children wearing blue twins Reference to The Shining, the hotel. Reference to the Overlook Hotel, where the Grady girls... <laughs> bing, bong, boom. Bing, bong. Connect the dots, motherfuckers. <laughs> Don't be part of the system, man. You got to step outside, man. <laughs> so from here, the doctor gives Danny clean bill of health, says it's imaginary friend. Fine. Same thing in the book, except for it's a boy doctor, right? Yeah. Okay, whatever. Yeah, but... And he approaches it, her about the broken arm, and so there's some, there's some pretty right. key differences there. also... This is, is this a part in the book where Danny tells the doctor that Wendy is thinking about her, her sister. sister? Yes. And, you know, she's really upset and she got into a car accident and she died. Yeah. And so, you know, that's not referenced at all in the, in, in the movie. And then, I mean, it's just another layer to his shining that I guess you kind of right. get an idea of what exactly is the scope yeah. of they have to push the family's belief in him much quicker in the movie right right so yeah, I think yeah. that's where it is rather than like back and forth with his episodes and saying like oh he found this without us knowing where it was and all that yeah they're like oh no he had a fit right he can see stuff and yeah it's so funny how like even you're you're rooting for Danny like the entire time and the doctor's just some piece of shit that's like, oh, it's like a precognitive blah, blah, blah. And you're like, shut up, dick. He has special powers. <laughs> shut your ass. Did you notice that there's like books everywhere in this house, even on the windowsills? Yes. Super interesting. Yeah. Because that somebody had to go and make a prop department and go and get a requisition, all of these things to put in this room. You Not very often are you going to have something that's just coincidental like yeah. that. So I th here's my theory. It is meant to symbolize Jack's feelings of inadequacy and her feeling of being trapped by the literature of Jack, where he she feels that she's confined to do whatever he wants in his bidding because he has to write a screenplay, which is why she does all of the work at the Overlook. Nothing is ever done by Jack, which is completely different than the book, wherein she does nothing except for Cook. Okay. I thought of it more as like Jack can't write anything of value compared to all this other literature. He's one of those readers that reads everything. What well, towers over him is better him, than his. Him diminutive as well. Correct. Yeah. 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 Okay. So same sort of thing, but yeah, for so, both of them, it works. Yeah. Next scene is them doing the tour with Dick Halloran. Scatman. There's some interesting stuff. There's a good justification for there being no booze in this where they say it just costs more insurance. That Makes practical ex element. I don't, you know, I don't know enough of my insurance code to know if that's correct, but I like that it's, it's a capitalist business. I mean, you're in the business of everything, so why wouldn't you cut it out? Yeah, and if you are going to leave someone in your hotel that you barely know, right, right. you're taking every, every risk out that you can. If they're not supposed to be in a certain room, it's locked and there's no key for it. 
Yeah. You know, you don't leave him like, no, you could go anywhere you want, do anything you want in this hotel for an entire winter. Here are some lawn darts. Go play in the, the <laughs> yeah, lobby. Exactly. So if funny. you get injured, you're dead out here. <laughs> What's so funny about this part in particular is when Dick is going over all of the different things within the pantry and within the fridge and Michelle's like, Brian, if you got offered a job like that, we're totally taking it. Yeah, for sure, dude. <laughs> I was like, because of the food, babe, I might kill you. <laughs> She's like, nah, it'll be worth it. <laughs> How many lamb shanks? No, we're good. <laughs> Which is funny because in the now you talk about lamb shanks, right? Because in the book, he said, do you like lamb shanks? And he says, yes. And in the movie, he says, no. It's something stupid to, <laughs> that's different. Well, he doesn't whatever. even know what they are. I and mean, that's one of the things that, you know, Dick is able to tell what's going on in the kid because of the inconsistencies. He's asking these things. And if Danny's reading his mind a little bit, he might be able to tell. Well, right. also in this, he's prying it out of Danny. Yeah. That's why they have the chocolate ice cream and they sit together. It's not in Dick's car, which I think is kind of interesting because I, I think it's a lot better that it's not in Dick's car because that just seemed a little strange. I like that. Come that's here, strange. So boy, get in my car because Wendy is very aware of what's happening. very much yeah. like, okay, do I need to fucking raise the alarm? Exactly. Right. <laughs> but so Wendy also knows that there's something really weird about her own son. So yeah. she's right. like, what's going on? And she's comforted by Dick. She knows. I mean, she loves Dick. <laughs> well, because they talk about it in the book. <laughs> How many fucking times do they bone in like the two months that they're actually there? Dude, I'll fucking take, you know, if, let me just I say. I just like the way everybody's saying she's comfortable with dick. She loves dick. Dude. Yeah. She, I, she craves be? dick <laughs> at a certain point. She's begging for dick to come but Danny, to her. But Danny is also begging for dick and we yeah. won't go there. Wait, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, There's but, no toilet paper in room 27. Oh, God. But in the book, yeah, he has like this power over women with his shining is kind of what he says right right so she, he can like put them at ease a little bit which yeah, is creepy absolutely. but anyway so right before that you do get to see the twins though yes. so again you're like instantly danny's like oh that vision i had those are the twins they're really here <laughs> disappear then we go oh on. the twins you mentioned oh did you know that the poster on the wall behind that says monarch is a reference of course to mk ultra also the shadow of the skier has a disproportionately large upper body to lower body, thus symbolizing the Minotaur and the labyrinth that is the Overlook Hotel, which is obviously reiterated in the hedge maze. Obviously, you knew this, Chad. Yeah. So overt. Subconsciously, I just knew all that. Yes. Yeah. Let's move on, shall we? <laughs> room 237. You guys notice that fucking room is the only room on that entire floor that has a double door. Yeah. Double doink. Double doink. You're a wizard, Harry. <laughs> Why is it 237? Oh, we already said it's because there wasn't a room 237 at the Timberline Lodge. Bullshit. Stupid hotel. Obviously stupid. It's because the moon is roughly 237,000 miles from Earth and Stanley Kubrick faked the fucking moon landing when he filmed it all using his 2001 Space Odyssey footage techniques. So People this is him saying, too much of that dope. I, I want to tell you all, but the CIA is going to kill me which happens right after he makes eyes wide shut, which talks about the fucking Illuminati, man. You got to figure this stuff out. It's right there. I really wish I had the uh, interest and passion mm -hmm. to Did believe you in any of that. Did you know <laughs> that when Danny has the, the fucking sweater, the sweater he gets choked in? Choking, a symbol of silence, of suppression, right? 
or pleasure. Shut the fuck up and let me finish. <laughs> He's wearing an Apollo 11 sweater. Choke me, Brian. Showing it's a lie. <laughs> there was no. And he wants to say, hey, I'm Stanley. My name is Stanley Kubrick and I fake the moon landing, but he can't say it because he's being choked out by some naked old lady. Which Maybe is the CIA. It. Maybe he liked it. <laughs> well, it's Edgar Hoover who was a crossdresser. Ah, That's the naked lady in 237. All come together. Let's rewrite this thing. Boom. <laughs> it jumps to a month later. Jack gets breakfast in bed until sleeping until 1130. What yes. the fuck? Yeah, she's well, like, let's wake Jack up because this is it's again, like yeah. clearly the morning. And right. then they're like, oh, what time is it? 1130. But the fuck? This is great though. The morning after. It's great showing his character the way he looks at responsibilities he's yeah, pretty much like the, the oh. character degradation basically right he's somebody who is punctual at first when he goes for the interview and then soon after he's like okay well it's back to same old jack part Lawrence. of it yeah part of it is the show though uh, like being a functioning alcoholic is like i could put on the show but over time or like once i have my own ability to like be relaxed you're like yeah i'm just gonna do whatever the hell i want yeah basically he's like i got the job boom I don't got to do anything for several months. It's like dating versus being in a relationship. I haven't had a six pack and I don't know how long <laughs> I used to do core workouts all day. And it's now called, I'm just like flubby. It's called dad bod. Yeah, dude. You guys all did it wrong anyway. Cause I've never had one. And I, you know, boink, boink. you're also married to a <laughs> succubus. <laughs> she doesn't listen to these episodes, right? Cause I have a feeling she'd probably hate me even more than she already does. If she did. I don't know. Yeah, she doesn't. She would she, tell me if she did. She doesn't not listen to the episodes. <laughs> <laughs> Just like 95% of our followers on social media platforms. Moving on. <laughs> Jack talks about having a very comforting feeling and feeling at home. Instantly, I felt home here, Wendy. I felt this sense of deja vu. Right. Even at the interview. Yeah. Yeah. Before his family's even there. Very important. It's, it's, it, you know, this instant desperation to be here. But he's living the life. Yes. So nothing has gone wrong. And the moment he's even confronted with a minor inconvenience, he goes crazy. Right. And the same thing about him being kind of a lazy ass. She pretty much asks him to like just go on a walk with her. And he's like, he's I like, should probably do some writing first. Like, well, <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not. And which I mean, this sets it up perfectly to what, you know, happens towards the end of the film. Right. It all leads up to a certain point. Yeah. And the next part is where it shows her and Danny going through the maze. On the walk that she should have had with Jack. I don't, I don't know if it's established if it's there coinciding, but I mean, it, it it is one after the other. But then at that time, he's throwing the ball against the wall. Yeah. So it shows right. he's not doing but he, either or. He's exactly. not doing either the maze or the fucking walk. Yeah. There's a I couple. Have too much fucking more busy right. things to do, I guess. Yeah. Throw a ball against yeah, the wall. There's a couple scenes of him definitely having some sort of like writer's block. You can't do it. And then you get the scene with the maze because you get that little bit of time separation. Like he, I think it's two separate scenes where he's like not writing. Sure. But it just shows like it's not immediate. And then because when he's staring at the maze, he's like crazy looking. Well, yeah, that's, that's much further on. Right. right. So going straight to him actually trying to write, ta 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 you have Wendy who comes up and he, she, he views it as her interrupting. She's offering him sandwiches and yeah. trying to be supportive. Meanwhile, I would be fucking loving it. I'm like, please. Thank you. Absolutely. Can I have another? You call this a sandwich, you <laughs> bitch. <laughs> Tony. So behind him during the scene, there's a chair and the chair's not there. And the chair's there again. Is that deliberate to make you uncomfortable? Or is it an editing mistake? There, Stanley Kubrick notice. was very famous for having people do hundreds of retakes. So it's very possible that a stagehand 
tried to hang themselves by stepping onto that. <laughs> but anyway, right. so that's the first part where you're seeing just you a really complete dissociation. Yeah. The scene ending with literally the quote, why the fuck don't you start and get the fuck out of here? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Buckaroo Banzai, let's calm that down. And then the snow starts to fall. And then he, you get the black turtleneck sweater. Yes. Got my chain and my turtleneck sweater. <laughs> staring out the window looking catatonic. Yep. While they're playing. Mm-hmm. And it's very Snowball. interesting. Yeah. Super cute. Yeah. She does a really good job of being very maternal and everything. I, right. I think that the short time that you get, she has a very good job of it. And this is like the expression that definitely just paints what's going on in his head. It's a great visual. You're like, oh God, like what's going on in his mind just must be crazy. And the blackness. I mean, he's wearing a black turtleneck sweater. Right. You don't have him wear that kind of starch contract. So this shows like the depravity of what's going on yes. in his head. So then, then it cuts to her talking to the ranger station. And this is a cute scene. It may, it's very endearing to her because she's playing the part, right? Over. And she has this like nice conversation and they effectively establish they're isolated, that the radio is their only lifeline. The, the outside world. lines are down. So essentially this is it. Yeah. And the ranger says, I would recommend keeping your radio on at all times from now on. And spoilers, that doesn't happen. <laughs> you got Danny riding on his fucking tricycle around. Chad, you want to take over for this part? Yeah, this part was really interesting to me because the shot that they use is just great. It's behind the tricycle. He's like speeding through the halls. You got the creepy kind of music. And you know that at some point it's going to pay off with like the sharp turns that they're showing with the camera following him going around the corner. And it doesn't pay off for like the first two times because they're like settling, settling you in for it. Or like building up the suspense. In this first one, he's riding the bike. And this is where you also get him staring like he's being lured to 237. So he kind of passes it and then stops the bike, turns and looks, checks the door if it's locked. It's locked. And then he like goes away. Did you guys feel like the sound of the tires, the bzzz, was a reference to the wasps that we don't get in the movie compared oh, to the book? that's interesting. I didn't even think about that. Could be. I thought it, what I thought was really cool about Anytime he was really riding his trike is the emphasis on the sound of the wheels going over the carpet and then going over the hardwood floor and then back and forth. Like a pulse. Right. Right. It was really cool. So it cuts to him and Wendy watching their TV and he's like, can I get my fire truck? And she's like, no, you can't get your fucking fire truck. Shut up. No, you can't get your fire truck because Jack's sleeping again. And this is where you get like the sense of uh, the child molestation. Truly. (laughs) Fucking weird. Dark. So he goes up to the room, you know, his mom says he can, but he he has to hurry so that she can make lunch. And so he creeps in and Jack is sitting there just staring and he's not asleep. And yeah, he says that he can't sleep because he has too much to do, but he does fucking nothing in this hotel. And he, Jack says that he wants to stay there forever. And this is where Danny says, you wouldn't hurt me or mommy, right? Very interesting tonal shift in his perception to his dad because there's the idol worship the whole time. Right. right. And you can you can almost get a sense that Tony is talking to him as well. Right. You get the you get the feeling that he's reading yeah, he, the he, emotion right now. He's using the shining. Yeah. The next scene that we got with Danny is when he's playing with the cars on the rug and the ball rolls up. The carpet is like so perfectly done for this scene. It's like all geometric shapes. It's very strange type of carpet and they kind of shoot it from up above. So it's it's again, it's like disorienting. You're just kind of like, oh, this is like weird shot. Very vivid. Very dark too as exactly, well. So there's yeah. a nice contrast between the kid and the floor. Right. There's also nothing around him. It's just like a big empty space with just him and his toys. Yeah. And the ball stands out so vividly because it's such a contrast light pink ball. 
where did it come from? It's right. very clearly not supposed to be there. Yeah. And it was very clearly acted upon, but he can't find the person. Right. And he finds himself going to 237. Oh, 237. yeah. Now, he's calling for his mom very specifically during that. Yes. And the door is already slightly open. There's a theory that the door is slightly open because the cabinet is slightly open when the girls are in the hallway and there's the axe scene. I don't buy that bullshit. But I do find it interesting that he's looking for his mom and then he finds a naked old lady. Oedipus. Yeah, well, he... <laughs> And it makes sense because he's the mom has to go and like clean each room so they don't get, you know, they have to keep the upkeep because the mom's pretty much doing all the work in this where Jack's supposed to be doing it all in the book. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so he's like interested being lured I mean, to the room and maybe I she could, was supposed to be cleaning it because the key's in the door. So he's like, okay, maybe she is cleaning it. I could see that, but I could also think that maybe him being a what, six or seven year old kid, if you're at any moment in time afraid at all, I feel like the first thing you do is you call out for your mom or your dad. Yeah. Mama. Mama, mom, mommy. Like, I'm scared, right? Really? I, okay. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> or not. I, I just know. say I mean, Satan. Do you know how many friggin' takes it took for them to roll a goddamn ball to the kid? Oh, no. It has to be in the hundreds because that's all I keep hearing. 50. Oh, okay. Crazy, right? That's why, a light, though? That's a light amount of takes. Yeah, why? Yeah. It wasn't perfect. Was that role perfect that we watched on the movie? Uh, I guess so. When <laughs> it cuts to Wendy taking care of the boilers, uh, which Jack doesn't do, and he's yelling in his sleep. Yes. And she runs across, he's like howling, and she runs across the entire hotel to get to him, and you find him at his little work table. This is, is the first time you see which her. Which is interesting, the fact that she's over, she's down in the boiler room where you can imagine it being very loud, and he's probably across the hotel, and for some reason... His voice just carries. Mm. Very ethereal, yeah. Yeah. And this is, again, she's taking care of the boiler in the movie where it was his job. Right. Yeah. Right. Which uh, they established very, very early on within the book that the boiler is like a pivotal thing within the story. It's the time. It's essentially the heart of the hotel. Right. And it's the time code because he has to like they reset so many like scenes with like, oh, I have to dump it off. I have to dump it off. Right. Exactly. I have to dump it off. Shit. I didn't dump it off. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's, the it, it's a ticking time bomb. I don't know if it it's maybe just a nod to the book that they even include the boiler room within the movie because otherwise there's no real reason for her to be in there. Exactly. Yeah. hundred yeah. percent. And, you know, this gets to the difference between the ending with an explosion and the ending with a guy freezing to death. But right. right. So she goes and wakes up Jack. He's completely, I don't know, no idea what's going on. He has a kind of a blank, like, stare in his face when he first wakes up. And then no, he, he realizes he, that yeah. he had a bad dream. And he tells her that he had a dream where he <laughs> was, he killed Danny and Wendy, but he didn't just kill her. He actually goes into detail yeah. about it. And you're like, okay, you don't want to freak your wife out. Yeah. So maybe just leave out the part where you chop them into tiny pieces. <laughs> Even that, like, great note, guys. Do not tell your wife you had a dream you're going to kill her and your children. That's it. <laughs> just don't do it. Yeah. You say, oh, no, I, I had a bad dream. So from there, you have Danny who appears on the stairs. And Wendy's trying to calm down Jack, but she's also like, okay, Danny, what's going on? Hey, maybe you should stay over there. And she's like, oh, well, I'm going to go over there and see if I can, you know. I love this scene because it's, she's torn between the two. Right. She's exactly. trying to protect Danny's psyche by saying like, hey, she tells him to go. Fine. Yeah. She's like, everything's fine. fine. Go play in your room. Go play in your room. And he's doing like the zombie 
catatonic right. walk. He has his thumb in his mouth, right? Correct. Yes. Okay, so that is a great another right. idea of the abuse. Right. He's choked and he's suppressed, so he can't talk about it. He's sucking on a phallic object. Yeah, and so when Danny keeps walking forward, she's like, "Oh God, something's wrong." Then she walks up and sees the choke marks, and she instantly flips on Jack, and you're like, "Yeah." <laughs> well. Think about it. There's only two people that could possibly have done this. Exactly. It's and me he not just knowing said, what the fuck happened. He just said, I had a dream. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, in this, I think it's a little bit less um, perplexing that she's so aggressive to him. Because in the book, you know, she doesn't even entertain the idea it could be somebody else or anything like that. In, in this, he literally just says, Oh, I just dreamed I murdered you guys. And then, oh, right then, yeah. it's a direct contrast. So, yes. So Which leads to Brian's favorite meme. <laughs> it is my favorite meme. It's of Jack where he just has this perplexed look on his face. Right. I'm sure Jake will have some comedy gold later. <laughs> she just flat out Brian. says like, how could you do this? Right. And, and he just like, has oh. this blank stare on his face. Huh? <laughs> so then yeah. he goes to the bar and he starts talking well, on his way to the bar. He's way, just knocking dude, shit over so and yelling. And- he's, He's just he's so over dramatic in showing how his his anger and his frustration. Right. And he's just like throwing his arms out in the air, like oh, like punching the air type yeah, of thing. Exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. And then he tells Lloyd, this figment of his imagination, he lies and says, I never touched the kid. Now, okay. And then he starts to back down on it. He goes, Well, I did dislocate his shoulder. He then he says it was three goddamn years ago. No. According to Wendy, it was five months ago. Yeah. Uh, again, kind of, the, he refers to Wendy as "quote the old sperm bank upstairs." So that was fascinating. It's lovely. <laughs> then Wendy runs into the bar with the bat. And she goes, "There's a crazy woman in here." Danny just told me, and she's just trying to move on. And he's like, "No, no, 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 no! You're fucking crazy. You're interrupting me." And he's very aggressive with her. What's interesting, I wanted to note Garrett Brown, who is the inventor of the Steadicam, did all the Steadicam work on this film, and you can really tell this was only the seventh film of all time to actually use a Steadicam. The others, of course, being Bound for Glory, Marathon Man, Rocky, The Exorcist 2, The Heretic, Buddy Holly, Rocky 2, and Fame. Huh. So this is like very much a unique film to be using this kind of technology, and it does it very effectively. Yes. So this is where you get uh, Danny, how do we phrase this? Pounding the fuck out of his schlong mentally, because that kid looks like he's beating the beef, <laughs> but he's actually calling Dick to come. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> <laughs> Say that one more time. Danny's pounding the beef, but he's actually calling Dick to come. Yeah. <laughs> Aren't those the same things? Because <laughs> that kid is on his bed, drooling and like <laughs> shaking. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, God. That's oh, man. <laughs> All of this sounds so bad. <laughs> so bad. And then this is when Jack goes to room 237 and you get to see well you get to see the well nice titties first nice titties first right yeah because he gets seduced into like kissing her you get like his crazy look where he like slightly smiles and like then steps forward to her and instantly just like embraces her and starts kissing her right and And then 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 it's like nasty asshole zombie lady and it goes to the bathroom the bathtub where it's her like just hanging out in the water and then she lifts you know she sits up he freaks out he runs out of the room you hear like cackling and he just like shuts the door and i'm like grab the fucking key like he just leaves the key in the doorknob you're like okay whatever but he's so crazy at this point he partions off his mind instantly where he goes back to the room and he's like there's no one there 
Yeah, he tells like, her. Whoa, okay. Like that's a complete flip right. to like his I'm so panicked, I'm running, I'm leaving to And this is where Danny sees the red rum for the first time. Right. Like the hotel is instantly being able to like suppress his psychotic part to be like, Oh yeah, everything's fine. And Jack goes to the party. This is kind of fun. Yep. The dog man is not here, but rather in the other one, which we know is a yeah, dog man's like fucking piddling on the ground and stuff. It's weird. Mm-hmm. Very uncomfortable. But this is where you get the great scene with him and Grady where he accuses Grady. He's like, you killed your wife and kids and then killed yourself. And Grady like, can't even reconcile that. The ghost of Grady in the potty. So that's a very intense scene. Clearly the visual of the very strong red blood in the men's room. It's good. And then he gets told by the waiter that his boy sent out a call to help Halloran. And he goes, oh, well, I can't have that. And that's what starts everything to go a little bit different than the book. Cause in the book, it's clear that the hotel wants Danny so its power can grow. Whereas in this, it's just, Oh, I have to kill him because he's disobedient in a way. Right. 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 And in, in the book, what's really interesting is how it shows how much jealousy is shown from Jack to Danny. Yeah. Exactly. Right. He's like, well, I should be the one the hotel wants. Correct. Why is it that it's Danny? Yes. I'm the one supporting the family. This is about me. And then the hotel exploits him with that. Right. Like, oh, well, if you want, just prove it to us. Right. If you want to be management, you have to keep your family. You have in to line. bring us Danny. Yeah. If you can't handle one child, how can you handle this whole hotel? Which is a real thing. It's kind of strange. Yeah. And then Jack ends up taking out the conduits in the CB radio so that they're stranded. And this is where you get Scatman flying to Colorado. They touch on some of the stuff from the book as far as him getting the snowmobile and everything. I thought it was well done. Wendy finally reads what Jack's been working on. And this is my favorite scene of the whole movie. Oh, it's great. I mean, just the idea that she is reading. And it's really hand typed. This They didn't yes. have fucking Microsoft Word to do this. And there's a theory that it was all on Stanley Kubrick's aforementioned yellow typewriter that had like automatic options that you could do. And that there were deliberate typos, there were deliberately shifts into That's like the saming and everything. And I, my my favorite ones where it's like the kind of triangular shapes. It's very uncomfortable, and the terror on her face when she realizes that she's just perplexed. Right, and it, I mean it. It goes back to us saying all along, Jack literally hasn't done fuck all the entire time. He's like, I've been writing. Oh my God, I need to get my writing done. And he's doing the same fucking thing over and over again. Yeah, right. and of the 500 pages, all of it is all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Right. And so when she sees it, it's not as though he descended into the madness and it starts off as a narrative. He's always been fucking crazy since he's been here. Yes. That sense of deja vu was crazy. Now in the Italian version, it's il mattino hallo oro in bocca. He who wakes up early meets a golden day. In the German version, it's was du heute kannst borskorsgen das Wirkenberg nicht auf morgen. Never put off till tomorrow what you can do today. Bravo. And Spanish version is no por mucho mordrugar amanense más temprano. Or obviously, although one will rise early, it won't dawn sooner. Huh, but all, those don't mean the same thing as all work and no because all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy implies that he is not working, whereas all of these seem to encourage getting right. up and actually take, seizing the exactly. day. Exactly. It's more of like a comedic type aspect too. Like his, you know, I want a party sort of side. Yeah. And it's, you know, the Jack and his name and everything, just like John is exactly. the name later. 
So he finds her and he approaches her and it's just where she's swinging the bat. She's, she's swinging pleading the bat. with him to get like leave her alone. And I she looks terrified. terrified. Yeah. She looks terrified. She's selling it. Yeah, absolutely. Her swinging the bat. 127 takes a Guinness World Record at the time. Now, I think that's just insane. But it's weird because <laughs> there is a contradiction later on in the production notes that it was 148 times when Danny's being told about The Shining. I don't know how that distinction is, but whatever. So Wendy hits him with the head, locks him in the freezer, and that's where you get, obviously... The open. Yeah. The first visual. So by this point, she's taken the knife when she left with the, from the pillar that points at Danny. Right. She goes to the room, and he pursues with an axe, which Grady used to kill his kids. So it's so odd to me that it's a rogue mallet, but whatever. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And so the here's Johnny scene. Well, first, I think we all agreed. Wendy... I'm home, right? Just the way he says it. I, I like that better than I like, here's Johnny. I don't know. I feel like apparently the masses are like, oh my God, here's Johnny. It's so great, right? Is it like a reference to like Johnny Carson or Correct. something? But for us, it's only ever been a reference to The Shining. We, I never watched Johnny Carson, yeah. so I never got it as that. So they got it as a pop culture reference, which is kitschy, and we only get it from this. I think both work completely well with how he says both. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, well, it's also better than the book wherein he says, quote, nowhere left to run, you cunt. <laughs> Whoopsie. Yeah, the this is also towards the end of the book where a lot of fun things get thrown out there. Yeah. Have you seen the making of the scene? Oh, yeah, where he's like running in place. And oh, it's swinging. great. He's like psyching himself up oh, and yeah. he's like jumping around and he just, he seems unhinged and kind of crazy. Well, it took three fucking days and 60 doors. Yeah. This <laughs> oh is not God. something that was instantaneous. Yeah. So. And then after she escapes, she puts Danny in the bathroom and he slides down the hill, which is very beautifully shot. Yep. Very soothing and serene the way he slides down. Well, the yeah, and it also is just the stark contrast between all of the blood and the yellow in the room in the bathroom. Her cutting know, his hand, yeah. Right, compared to the white snow and the ser serenity of him just sliding down almost like an innocent child. Because he is an innocent child. Right. He runs off because he hears the snowmobile approaching. So she leaves the room. And as she's walking, she gets to see the bear sucking off Herwitz's dick hole. <laughs> and uh, yeah. But it's good because it finally shows like how much power is now reached that she's getting so much of the visuals now too. Because you kind of in the book, she hears things and stuff, but she doesn't like start seeing it till climax time. Exactly. And at this point, you cue in Halloran. When Halloran gets there in the book, he gets beaten with the mallet and gets some injuries, but oh, he's fine. For, before that, he gets attacked by the old lion. Yeah, well, God. Fucking and he lights apart. it. It sets him on fire, yeah. right? It's so weird. <laughs> so it's stupid. a little strange. And this is after Jack has hit himself in the face with the rope mallet to where he's completely unrecognizable. Right. So when he hits it, it's like he's transformed. Versus in this, he just has a demented face. I... I've the two things I like about the rogue mallet is a that he disfigures himself and it's a completely like almost new entity and b when they depict the splintered end of the rogue mallet to be like almost like a multi-pronged weapon I think that's interesting but I love the axe this is one of my all-time favorite kills in a movie of all time the axe to the chest of Scatman because I think that that I mean that character is the martyr of this film he's done nothing wrong he has saved this child. He He's doing sacrificed, absolutely. And everybody who's read the book is expecting at this point, oh, well, naturally he's going to live. He's going to live. Boom. Nope. Dead wrong. Yeah. Fool is dead. And that's, I mean, that's the one kill that he gets is that. Right. 
But the, the book plays it off as if he is going to die because he's like, oh, I just wrote this will. He gets the vision from Danny and then he, the, the will drops out on the floor and he's like, oh, that's how it is. Not only that, but uh, yeah. fucking Jack just takes off, takes out like the whole half of his face with a swing of the rope mallet. That right. breaks his cheek, his teeth breaking out and everything. Yeah. yeah. But what also isn't in the book is Jack getting stabbed in the back by his wife and then having all that's of the it. strength to the, keep continuing. That's, that's on the movie. Yeah, correct. That's not yeah, the yeah, movie. Exactly. Or yeah. him hitting her with a mallet well, yeah, breaking and her back what's in her so ribs. What's so crazy right. is even in the book though, he still had the strength with the knife in him. Exactly. And she right? mentions that. Yeah, she mentions she's like, how is he so fucking strong right. with this knife sticking out of his back? Because it's not him anymore. Right. Exactly. Even and when this he's is supernatural, yeah. smashing his face, Danny says he can see several different people like flash through he was like, oh, it was the guy, previous caretaker. Brady. And then it was uh, Duritz. Duritz. Yeah. So he's like, yeah, it, he could see all of like the possessions kind of like I am Legion sort of thing flowing through him. Right. Which is, I think, interesting. Very hard to do in the time period that it was made as a movie, though. So then he pursues Danny out in the maze and, the, you know, the kids running around and he's howling for him. Danny! And uh, oh, one thing real quick. Super quick, can't believe we didn't talk about when he's saying like he's playing the part of the big bad wolf. That is so good when he's like, "I'll leave you up." I'll yeah, and I'll oh, that's yeah. so good. I kind of wish that there was more like that in this scene. But then, as I was saying that out or in my mind, him just like barking and howling shows like there is no wit and humor anymore. There's this is just left. madness. Right. So I actually really do like the contrast between his ritty, you know, kind of banter and then this. It's almost as if Deadpool was like, ha ha, I'm being, breaking the fourth wall and referencing Johnny right, Carson. Right. Oh, I'm actually a mercenary. Right. It comes back full circle to where apparently Jack was too busy to go hang out and learn the maze. Exactly. Right? It comes to bite him in the ass. If he just would have went out on a one walk. <laughs> Instead of writing the same shit over and over again. And thus we have Love frozen Jack everything. Nicholson. Yeah. Instead of the explosion. <laughs> and in the original ending for the movie, they established that they never found the body when Wendy and Ullman have a, a little meeting and he wants them to stay there and Danny is given a tennis ball from earlier and then there's text after which says the hotel closes blah blah every winter. <laughs> this is one of those movies when you hear like all the outrageous takes and that amount of number like oh it took 137 takes. I really want to see the first like 5 to 10 takes put them in the movie and really see if there was like that much of a difference. I really wish we can go back and be like, this director's just full of shit. Yeah. The quote is the overlook would survive this tragedy as it had so many others. It is still open each year from May 20th to September 20th. It is closed in the winter until it's not because it explodes. Yeah. Right. The explosion's pretty good though. Open in Dr. Sleep anymore. Right. So it's burned down. Exactly. The only time it exists is in his like mind palace. Right. Yeah. My so. mind. Some of the footage from that opening shot with the scenic stuff was used in Blade Runner, which obviously satisfies my soul, but I don't think anybody else <laughs> gives a fuck. Now, that is the movie. Is this a classic, a trashic, or a tragic? Classic. I think it's a classic for yeah. sure. Classic, inarguably, but does it beat Alien? No. 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 No, no. no, no, no. I would actually love to see this movie as a silent film. Dude, this movie came out after Alien. Yeah, that's crazy. Think about that. In terms of like film history, it seems like this movie is so antiquated, but no, it's not. Like, think about how well cut Alien is by comparison to this. Think of how many long silences there are in Alien that don't feel as long and exhausting as this movie. Yeah. But 
if you look at all the visuals from this movie, I just think about it as like, they're almost telling, like we've talked about it so many times with like really good horror movies. I feel like you get the feeling, you get the progression or degression of Jack through all of it as a silent film. Even you could do a 30 minute silent film version of this. It could be amazing. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. I would love to see that like really like up the contrast, not black and white, but really high contrast. So everything is just so much more severe. I think it'd be right. really red. It'd be very so you should edit that and we'll take credit on the slashers page. Uh, all right. I know all right, all right, all sometimes right. it's like a, a no, no word that people tend to stay away from. But do you think that this is a movie that could potentially be remade? Oh yeah, for sure. I agree. I do. But at the same time, I feel like it's as far as like a legacy for Jack Nicholson. Like it's he just did such a good job. It's like I don't know if anybody can hold a candle to it. I all did great. I love. Yeah, I was gonna say I love the Batman Jack Nicholson. No, oh, from the Joker. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I think people would have to confront is you'd have to do it entirely differently. Yes. Look at the way yes. they did it in it chapter two. They just it, did think, different stuff with that source material, but with the kind of backing that Warner Brothers could put into it, I think they could legit, legitimately do a very good job. But the fact is, they'd have to distinguish it, so it's not trying to be because that's one of the things that you'll see when we do the Shining series in a year. That it is very referential to this movie, even though Stephen King proclaims that right. he hates it so much. You do something very different, like modernizing it changing things and making it way more surreal. It would be a little more interesting though if you, they can pick and choose from the original Shining and the book, right? And then kind of choose the, the best aspects from both of them. Yeah. A lot of the stuff that is out of the movie I didn't like. Like the hedge animals or whatever. I don't want them to revisit that. I don't want them to do the hose. No. No. Absolutely like, That's not. all the, like the dumb stuff. You can put in I like the more weird... so like the history Right, the hotel would have been cool. That would be good because if you walk around and you have Danny seeing the room where the, the where the, the guys get yeah the guys, exactly there's a hit on right. like the mob and, and you shit. see blood and brains scattered on the wall that right. makes sense because then you're also getting into the history where he does talk to Jack and he's like uh, I saw brain splattered on this and he was like oh and then he tells Wendy yeah there was a murder in that room right that stuff I think you could definitely add and make it spooky and it adds the history like we were talking about if there was a new one. I'd want Alex Garland to direct it. The guy who did Annihilation. He did a very good job of making something disorienting. He also did Ex yes. Machina, which I think... I love both those movies. Yeah. I think that they're visually fantastic. You know what I think would be a really good Jack Torrance? Hugh Jackman. I could see that. Oh, okay. Almost so similar, though. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Because that howling voice. I mean, think about like Wolf and then think about Wolverine. They're so similar. But I could see that for sure. I don't I totally vibe on what you're saying, but I think that, that comparison would be so overt to most people. Who who's your dream casting for a remake? Jack Torrance, Chadwick. <laughs> oh. If you say Ryan Reynolds after we talked about Amityville Horror, I will yeah, slap your face. Yeah, boy. Um no. I'll do Bill Hader. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck. That could be so good or so terrible. I know. It's interesting, but yeah. I was going to go with a safe bet and say Ryan Gosling. Okay. Just he, yeah, name. he does a great job with or like the dark and Another psycho. one that came to mind was Christian Bale. Same kind of facial shape and stuff. Yeah, I can right. see that. Yeah, same. Yeah. And then as far as uh, the casting of everybody else, I don't think we have time to talk about that. No, I, <laughs> females, there's so many good actresses nowadays. Though. I mean, like that's one of the things that's so funny is like you have these examples of like classic film 
and you're looking at actresses who are so subjugated even in their own like leading roles and now you have like real like powerful women actors that you couldn't have you the Wendy. Shelley Duvall Wendy you're not getting you're getting the Wendy from the book Wendy would be, right I think Emma Stone could do a pretty good job funny enough I was gonna say another huh, ginger I was yeah. gonna say Laura Prepon or whatever that chick's name is from okay, uh, that 70s show that too. okay she's a Scientologist so she's fucking crazy so you know <laughs> it'll work out <laughs> who's yours um Jessica Chastain okay I don't know. I we all went with gingers that's pretty yeah. cool and for Danny Torrance I will give you mine Jonathan Lipnicki because he still looks like a child <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I don't know enough child actors. Yeah, seriously. It would be weird if we I mean, did someone know. Someone from Stranger Things? I don't know. Uh, sure. Oh, it would be great if it was Dustin. Yeah. That, I can't do a lisp with red rum. Damn it. I was just Come play with us, Danny. Oh, shit. All right, guys. I think this was a lot of fun. This was great. Anybody have anything for our future Stephen King adaptations? Obviously, November is taken for Dr. Sleep, but we still got December open, buttfuckers. So please hit us up at slasherspot at gmail.com. Also, rate, like, link, subscribe. Tell everybody you know to listen to this. Tell your grandma to listen to this. Get the weird looks. You deserve it. And uh, yeah, I've said it before. I hate when people pander and beg and plead and say, oh, please just like my stuff that I give away for free. But please, if you can, it helps us a lot. It helps justify. <laughs> you know, please, 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 please. Pretty I have please. no shame. Well, fuck. <laughs> we, tr- we tried to do an Instagram ad and people didn't care about it so much that we got a refund. <laughs> that tells you how fucking terrible things <laughs> are. But yeah, please. We're doing pretty good, guys. huh? Yeah. You know, and it's all word of mouth. I mean, if you're listening to this, there's a very strong probability you've already spoken to us in some capacity and correlate. And, you know, we'll continue to do that and just, yeah, we scratch your back, you scratch ours, cocksuckers. <laughs> or clit suckers. How about that? Hey. Or asexual nothing suckers. Rim jobs. There you go. Sir <laughs> Isaac Newton. But anyway, thank you all very much. Continue your support for our Patreon patrons. We absolutely love you. Thank you. We like the rest of you. But more like friends. We love our Patreon patrons in a sensual way. Kind of in a Jack Torrance and Wendy Torrance having sensual butt loving yeah, fucking buddy. 20 times in the book. The weird thing is after like the whole trauma, sh- they have sex on the bed right next to Danny. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. Yeah, like slicking the weird. nipples and you're like, what the? All Super right. Weird. Yeah. You're just unbuttoning your dress right. and you're just The like, wasps. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Very okay. weird. So if this really was a parable for the Holocaust, white Anglo-Saxon <laughs> Protestant wasps there were no wasps to strike Danny. Think about it. Think about that until the next episode of Slashers, which is, of course, going to be a two-part dynamic epic. Basically, it's going to be me telling you what happened in Marvel Zombies and how it came to be. <laughs> but yeah, for those of you who are skeptical about my ability to give you Marvel Zombies, know that I was not a huge fan of it when it came out. And I grew to love it because of my love for Ultimate Fantastic Four and some of those other things. So I'll get into the whole history and its derivations, spinoffs, and conclusions, and upcoming projects that involves Marvel Zombies. So stay tuned. Enjoy killing time. Until next week. You ain't watching him dying. You ain't really trying. And for Chad, for Brian, for myself, this very well may be the last time I do this sign-off because uh, we aren't hockey-themed at all anymore. But just remember to go out there and do something you love. And remember that all work and no power play makes Jack a dull boy.
I was so damn tempted to keep the initial draft of the Hidden Tracks Q-in for this week, but I just couldn't in good conscience do it. I tried to step out into the hall at court and do this, and somebody's immediately, it felt like I got five seconds into it, and somebody's like, Jake! Jake, are you Jake? And I was like, yeah, you're about 45 minutes late for court, but please, by all means, interrupt me while I'm talking into my laptop. Anyway... This is going to be E-Spectrostatic, also known as Alex Cuervo. You can find their music, or his music rather, at espectrostatic.bandcamp.com or at alexcuervo.net, where there you can see all of his uh, discography, including his self-titled works, the Hex Dispensers, and uh, honestly, a hell of a lot of fun. Super cool. I really love the album artwork, so please, by all means, support eSpectrostatic. It will make me ecstatic. <laughs> okay, bye.